Who's that? Shannon! I'm tied up! What? Can you get over here? is over but we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps so everybody i'm josh wiggler joined here by mike bloom and here we are staring at a big block of marble that at some point in the next four hours will hopefully turn into a podcast josh I saw you die in my arms in the stream bed that I'm pretty sure the hatch was there at one point. How is this happening? And did you see like my, my insides that looked really goopy and gross and it was all terrible. Did you like my pink sweater? I mean, listen, it looked very fetching on you. I should say, even though it looked like a monster was playing fetch with you. I mean, it's crazy. Stop trying have, to make fetch happen. We have, we have talk about Michelangelo happen. and we have a shredder going on if Shannon's body is of any consideration. So <laughs> oh very TMNT God. heavy episode of <laughs> yeah. the Hatch. Secret of the ooze. Secret of the ooze. <laughs> secret of the boon. Uh, yes. Secret of the boon indeed as we are embarking on Hearts and Minds season one. Episode 13, The Boone Carlisle flashback. Get it while it's hot because it is not going to be, uh, it's not going to be long for this world. Yeah, short supply. Boone. Yes, absolutely. Short supply indeed. Of course, Lost Down the Hatch, spoiler filled, Lost Rewatch podcast. We're talking about Lost from the perspective of people who have watched the entirety of Lost, which means if you are listening to this podcast and you have not watched all of Lost, then you've basically just been spoiled that Boone's not going to make it much further. Uh, he's he's going to be in trouble. But look, we're several weeks into this thing at this point. And if you're still listening, I feel like uh, you're doing this at your own risk. It's your own hazard. Exactly. Buyer beware here. Much like, uh, I guess, if you buy a nice wedding dress, you don't even know that it's secondhand from some sort of Australian sheriff's wife. Yes, exactly. All right, so we're going to be talking about some Australian sheriffs. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, tennis playing Boone. Going to talk about sister kissing Boone. We're going to talk about monster ducking oh, Boone. I know we haven't gotten to the Lindelof yet, but late contender for sister kisser instead of sister Christian. Oh, man. Well, sister Christian could be interesting too. Mr. Christian. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of potential uh, for I'm the Lindelof. I'm doctoring. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, yes, of course. If you, we've been getting a lot of great Lindelof submissions, and we're getting close to ready to pull the trigger on that. But when it will appear is anybody's guess. But if you want to submit to the Lindelof, which is our song parody competition, where you make a song parody about anything from Lost, those are the rules. Uh, you can find yourself in contention for a Wombat Station hat that you can win here uh, for a very fun, silly, lost song parody competition. Send that and all of your feedback to downthehatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can also interact with Mike and I on Twitter. I'm at Rand Howard. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. We record these podcasts on Tuesdays, so it's best to get your feedback in by Monday evenings if you can. If you can. Um, I don't know why Boston Rob is here. I think that Listen, he's just infiltrated our lives at this point. I mean, there's a lot of island talk that we've been doing this fall. I would not be surprised <laughs> if um, Michael would get shown up next episode by Boston Rob building some sort of constructed shelter better than right. Michael could have ever dreamed about with the yeah. aqueducts and the showers. <laughs> yes, it's true. Did you say aqueducts or aqua dumps? Oh, uh, boy. Well, uh, we haven't gotten to that yet, but Hurley, I'm assuming, has been, uh, that's been on his mind as of late, as we'll he, get into. He may want to consider it at the very least. I don't know if these dinosaur leaves uh, are the <laughs> best way to go. Who knows what's on them? Uh, they're like some sort of poisonous plant. Uh, but we're going to talk about that as we go forth into the jungle here, Mike Bloom, with Hearts and Minds, directed by Rod Holcomb and written by Get ready for it. It's a name we're saying in association with Lost in a professional, official capacity for the first time. Carlton Cuse is the co-writer of Hearts and Minds, his first Lost byline, writing this episode alongside Javier Grillo, Mark Swatch, a man we have referenced many, many times on this podcast. This episode originally aired January 12th, 2005, and it focuses, of course, on Mr. Boonhead. This is... I'm very excited for this. I'm always excited too. to talk about Lost, yes. but you know, I think there's been a lot of debate, especially not to spoil too much of our 4.2 stars section, but this has been a rather polarizing episode in terms of the ratings where some people feel it is bad and some people feel it's actually pretty decent to good. I know that, uh, of course, in true Mike Bloom fashion, I have uh, investigated this much later than we probably should have. Looking back at our mutual episode rankings we did on post-show recaps, uh, the one and only Joe Garfine, the great Joe Garfine, rated this as the second worst episode of Lost ever. Wow. Number 110. Joe, I love you to pieces. I would disagree with that. I think it remains to be seen, depending on your taste, whether or not this is a good or bad episode of Lost. But we can all agree, this is a weird episode of Lost. This might be the first outright weird episode that we've seen of the show. And with that is going to come a lot of discussion behind the choices, both for the best and maybe not so much with this episode. I mean, look, there was already a polar bear in the pilot. It's gotten weird for sure, but this is definitely a weird episode of Lost. It's a trippy episode of Lost. Uh, Boone, like, tripping balls in the jungle. <laughs> it's like a very, it's a very strange storyline. Um, we spent so much time before getting into the specifics of whatever the case may be last week. Um, kind of talking about the behind the scenesiness of it, talking about expectations of it, talking about whatever the case may be as in the conversation for worst episodes ever of Lost. I want to avoid having that conversation just yet. 
I don't, mm. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to like tip my hand one way or the other in terms of my feelings on hearts and minds. Let's let our hearts and minds guide us through the episode. Let's talk about what happens. We'll go through the process. We'll go through the feedback. We'll go through the MVP LVP point section, and then let's rate the episode and let's see where we land. I think that we're going to have a very fun podcast today. Yeah, I will also say right at the top here that I know you have a big spot in your heart and mind for all the best Cowboys have daddy issues. But for me, the actual episode title Hearts and Minds might be one of my favorites personally. Really? Why? Well, I think it's just, you know, it's not so flowery as uh, the aforementioned all the best daddies, but I love the the meaning behind it. You know, it comes from a strategy that the military used to curry the popular favor of uh, the Vietnamese people during the Vietnam War. And so it's less about, you know, uh, using, you know, the, the fist and more so appealing to them through public relations skills, winning the, as they say, the hearts and minds of the people. And it also has a lot of negative connotations when it comes to things like propaganda and propagating maybe uh, a fictitious narrative swaying someone's emotions to do something and well i feel like we might talk about the literal hearts and minds in this episode not only ones that are strewn about on the rocks in boone's vision but you know uh boone certainly being led with both of those organs in addition to some other ones but i feel like it's a great way to speak about you know the flashback stuff that happens and really something that i can very much forgot about this episode which is just how malevolent in my opinion john locke comes across here and how he really is somebody that is whether or not he knows it's propaganda he is absolutely spilling that out this episode so i think it's one of those multifaceted yet simplistic titles that i always love when it comes to lost well i think as it applies to this episode too uh you know there's a lot to talk about as it pertains to boone and shannon here in hearts and minds but this is also an episode that features so many of the different survivors of Oceanic yeah. 815's crash, uh, you know, through through Jack really being the primary avatar who's checking in with a lot of people. So we're checking in on the hearts and minds of so many of these characters. And I think what's fascinating about it, I know we said we'll, we'll talk about the behind the scenes stuff a little bit later, um, but I, I, I think it's worth talking about now that, you know, we talked about whatever the case may be being an episode that expressed a lot of like the difficulty and the turmoil that's happening behind the scenes on Lost at that point. Damon Lindelof feeling overwhelmed and they're just being discord and the need for Carlton Cuse to step in and come in as a partner, like a, a really firm partner for Damon Lindelof. For this to be the first episode that he's got a, a co-byline on and this being an episode that one of the chief creative minds that is going to be most prominently associated with Lost in Carlton Cuse. Coming into Lost and you, you see this as the first credit on the board and I think you're tempted to think, uh, oh man, his first episode was the one where Boone and Shannon make out. That's kind of disappointing. But I think that you overlook how much uh, how much richness there is with with the characters in yep. in a lot of these different background scenes, um, and that this is this episode itself in a lot of ways I think is Carlton Cuse getting acquainted with the hearts and minds of the characters that he's inheriting by coming aboard uh, this ship. So I think viewing the episode from that perspective I think is a little bit instructive as well. Um, yeah, and I think the, that that's about the, as behind the scenesy as I want to get with it. I mean, to the point where I will outright declare here that I think this and whatever the case may be should have been swapped in the episode run, I think this is a much better reintroduction back to Lost in 2005 than the previous episode, but we'll get more into the reasons why coming up. All right, so good news, Mike, because this is the first 
flashback for Boone, we can pull from the official series Bible uh, to yes. tell us <laughs> we're running low on official series Bible entries, but we still have one here for Boone. Uh, and we'll have one as, as late as season two as well, because I'm not going to read the Shannon one today. We'll yeah. wait until Shannon's flashback episode. Uh, but here we go. This is what the official series Bible says about Boone. Boone grew up in a world of wealth and privilege provided by a vast commercial empire run by his mother, the Martha Stewart of the wedding industry. Fatherless from a very young age, Boone quickly assumed the role of family patriarch. In one fell swoop, he became the heir apparent and self-appointed guardian of his sister. But Boone has a dark secret, one that even Shannon doesn't know. Diagnosed with schizophrenia during adolescence, he has since managed his illness with ongoing therapy and a cocktail of antipsychotic medications. Medications he stopped taking roughly a month before the crash. Ongoing survival crises find Boone at odds with his slipping sanity, leading to an inevitable breaking point, which will not only put him at odds with the others, but make him an outright danger! Well, I'm glad they, I guess, followed the rules of the road and put DANGER in all caps. I cannot believe I'm saying this, Josh, but I'm so glad that Boone was kissing his stepsister instead of being <laughs> schizophrenic. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I think you see shades of this through Boone, though. Uh, I think you see shades, at least, of the, these ideas behind Boone. That I think that Boone, being this person who comes to the island... Uh, with as we've described, right, like these feelings of like I'm the I'm the most important man in the room of every room that I go into. Until suddenly, he's very much not here on the island, or he's just not qualified in the way that some of these other people are qualified. Uh, he's he, he's got this, you know, kind of I don't, I don't know about dangerous as as the edge to him, but there's like a darkness to him, like increasing frustration every time he's stonewalled, every time he thinks that he's going to be able to contribute something only to find that he's not welcome here, here, or he's, uh, you know, he has this, he has this way about him that's just not landing with everybody else. And I think even some of the ways that this episode frames Boone, um, you know, beginning with the very first scene, you know, we yeah. open on an eye because of course we open on an eye and it's a very angry eye. I have in my notes, psycho eye, as Boone is staring off at Saeed talking with Shannon. And there is this like kind of chilling look about Boone. Um, I think probably at this point, you wonder, did they have did they have it in their mind already that Boone wasn't going to make it out of the season? Uh, did they know that they were going to take Boone into a to a more heroic landing point uh, than they that, that they ultimately went with than what they were conceiving at the start? Um, but I do think that like the building blocks are there for Boone to have taken a darker turn if that had been the direction they ultimately wanted to go. Uh, I think that it was certainly in place. It's it's interesting. You know, I, I think that I mean, obviously, I'm very glad this did not happen uh, because, you know, we definitely view mental health in a very different way where I think this would have been one of the ookier parts of uh, looking back on Lost from 2004, 2005, because it's very clear that we definitely did not have a, a, a grip on mental health no. as much as we did back then. But also, like, I... I if, if we even have it today. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> I also would not have personally liked to have seen Ian Summerhalder 
uh, you know, have to portray that. We see a lot of him, you know, seeing things and hallucinating in this episode. I don't know if I want that ingrained in the character of Boone at all times, you know? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but I, I can, I can imagine the alternate track where they, where they went down that road, uh, and they turned Boone into like some sort of lock disciple, the way that he becomes at the end of this episode, uh, that takes things way too seriously. You even see shades of that in next week's episode in special, uh, like Boone really does come across as, uh, oh God, what's Scud Farkas's lackey's name? Oh uh, God, the kid with the, the uh, the kid the with toady. the yeah, the kid with the, the raccoon cap. Well, that's Scott Farkas, but he's got like his little toady buddy uh, that has like the oh, news. Grover Dill, Grover Dill. That's it. Like, I feel like he has like a quality about that to, to John Locke in, in next week's episode. So, like, I, I think that you can see where maybe they could have gone that way. And then I think um, waking up to the fact that like they had a more powerful, better story to tell if Boone is more heroic. Uh, if, you know, they've al- they've already got dark forces in play on the island that they can play with. Um, and maybe taking Boone in that direction is just not working quite the same way. But if that's the case, then where are we taking Boone? And maybe the right way to take him is to his grave. Uh, so I think like maybe the choices were you continue barreling down this path of like turning him into like a dangerous uh, psychotic person, uh, you know, a mentally ill person who goes past a breaking point and maybe risking like not telling that story in a delicate, responsible way. Or you gotta kill him off, <laughs> and I think ultimately I prefer the version where he gets killed off. But at least he gets a full episode before they do any of that. And a very interesting episode of that, though. I agree with you. I will admit, I think the first ten minutes of this episode are by far the worst part. And yeah, it starts here where Boone is just. We saw this at the end of last episode when we see Saeed and Shannon sort of like you know being a bit buddy buddy about the translations and everything, and he is just glowering at them he is not staring daggers he's staring scimitar like tusks yeah. at these two people at the mere idea of saeed you know being around her does not like it at all and in fact as we go forth into the jungle here uh, and get into the summary of hearts and minds we do so alongside eight sounds from the episode let's bring in the first sound from the episode and boone does not know exactly what saeed and shannon are talking about but he's so angry about it from a distance i wonder how angry he would be if he heard the content of the conversation how about we take a listen i brought you a present for helping me with the translations I didn't have a chance to get a gift wrap, so... I found these in the wreckage, and I have no use for them personally. They're actually my size. Well, half a size off, but I swear this place is actually making my feet swell. Another mysterious force on the island is revealed. Josh, what are the chances that a shoe smuggler is on board Oceanic Flight A15? High! Very high! Super high! As high as Boone is going to get in this episode. Because let's let's also like paint the picture here that Saeed does not just find two shoes. They are in a shoe box! Yeah! <laughs> but he, unfortunately, uh, no uh, wrapping paper smugglers. Oh, could you imagine, like, all I'm imagining is Rowan Atkinson from Love Actually of, like, wrapping up, like, oh no, first Saeed, I must put a nice bow on it. Yes, and then yeah. I Put us wrap it all up. Yeah, he puts like a little uh, like a like gravel in there. He puts like a <laughs> stick in there. 
makes like a little makeshift bonsai tree that he's got like 17 different ribbons. Uh, I can imagine Saeed being uh, the king of gift wrapping, and that's why he's apologetic here. Uh, Saeed, so funny here. I have no use for them personally. It's just, it's just, uh, <laughs> Shannon brings out the sassy side of Saeed. And I, I, I love wanted, it. I, I wanted to pull this as well because, you know, I think we were pretty high on the uh, Shannon Saeed stuff last week. This is the only mention we're going to get of that this episode. So I thought it was a nice little uh, tail end to that while simultaneously showing, to your point, uh, maybe Boone's hesitation to bring Saeed in on this relationship. And I, apparently, you know, I did think for a second, uh, you know, Shannon talking about her feet swelling, maybe think about Bernard's finger swelling and maybe a possible theory that was uh, brought out at the time that maybe the island is far up in the air, much like the airplane was. And that's how it crashed so easily. That's amazing. Yeah. Like it wasn't that the plane really crashed so much as it just like flew into an island. Yeah, exactly. Like an <laughs> that's island that's like <laughs> thousands of feet in the sky. It's a floating island. Uh, and that's why Shannon's feet are swelling so badly. Uh, so Boone watching Saeed and Shannon, that's going to get interrupted by Hurley, who comes along, uh, wondering, uh, we get some dudes added to the dude count here as Hurley asks, dude, why aren't you coming back with the boar? We haven't had fresh pork on a plate in a week. People are hungry. We need solid food. This isn't a game. <laughs> and we, of course, know why Hurley is so upset about this. Poor dude's got liquid insides right now. Yeah, exactly. Like you, at, at first, if you don't remember this episode, you're like, wow, Hurley, you are coming in hot. Uh, but it's because things are coming out hot from Hurley. And I think that he's sort of like <laughs> very desperate at this point. And Howdy duty. Like I talked about last week, the apparently the narrative has now changed that Locke and Boone are no longer tracking Claire. I think, I guess everyone has heeded Ethan's warning sincerely and have decided to stop looking for Claire. And so now they say they're hunting for boars, though we'll talk about maybe Locke's uh, seedy reasoning as to why they aren't actually coming back with boar, because yeah. Hurley saw through that pretty quickly. Yeah, all right, so we get our first flashback of the episode. It's going to be Boone playing tennis, and he's coming back from the tennis court with his partner, who he's got his sweaty pits wrapped around. Uh, and I listen, is, I mean, uh, I, I, I know that we can look a lot of these things through hindsight, uh, but considering like the makeup of his tennis partner, assuming that that is his girlfriend, he has a type. He certainly has a type. Yeah. He drinks a, a glass of water from like this crystal goblet. It's like, oh, you, you, are, you are such a little princeling boon. Prince Carlisle in the house. Well, so I really like a lot of stuff about this episode, but this flashback, in my opinion, is awful and it's specifically like this this segment or the whole flashback this specific segment uh -huh. it, particularly because i don't know if carlton wrote this or javier did whoever wrote this specific scene has never played a game of tennis nor watched a game of tennis in their life because you have boone talking to his partner saying i can't believe you ran after that last ball then you hit it for a winner that's like how aliens would describe <laughs> tennis trying to fit in with the humans, you know, much like Elizabeth Mitchell's other show, V. That has to be like the schlockiest attempted line about tennis expertise I think I've ever heard. I didn't realize you were such a tennis expert, Mike. I grew up in Connecticut, Josh. It was in my blood. <laughs> Did you play a lot of tennis as a kid? Slipped a lot of crystal goblets in my time. Yeah, I mean, uh, there. I'll admit I went to some tennis training sessions, went a little bit wow. to tennis camp, so like... Yeah, it was something that I did, but it's just like... How's your serve, Bloom? Uh, listen, uh, I, I have not done it in quite some time, so I'm a bit rusty. They're probably better than Boone, considering I do not use the terms like 
you hit it for a winner, which just sounds so... It sounds like us, Josh, trying to talk about sports with someone like Akiva Winokur. <laughs> I feel like uh, you, uh, you hit a winner. I feel like that makes sense in tennis lingo. No? No, that's, I mean... That's, that's not mean, real? I mean, you could say, like, you return my serve. You know, that uh-huh. sounds a little more uh, common than, wow, you really hit it for a winner. Yeah. I got to call up my father, who's a big tennis guy. We'll get uh, Dr. Wiggler on the phone. Uh, maybe he'll he'll fare better here than Dr. Arst a few episodes <laughs> from now, uh, at the very least. But yeah, so Boone's like chugging water from this goblet of water. Uh, it's not to be confused with the Harry Potter book. Uh, and he gets a phone call, and it's Shannon calling, and she's screaming. She's like, get out of here! Get away from me! And I have uh, to say, you know, we'll find out later on that this is all a facade from Shannon. This is her own sort of long con. And I mean, she does a pretty good job here. You know, nothing re- here is real. All of it is fake. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's really playing up this whole abusive relationship. And it also mirrors, uh, much like the reflection in the Crystal Goblet, Boone's own, you know, uh, hallucination that we just played in our intro of, you know, hearing Shannon from all sides screaming about get away from me. It seems like this is just a situation that Boone commonly finds himself in. Yeah. So she says, I'm in Sydney, Australia. <laughs> Uh, so it's another, another instance of like, all right, here we go. Yeah. This which I believe, um, get him. Margot Shepard did the exact same thing too. I know. Sydney dot, dot, it's dot, Australia. Sydney, Australia. Uh, meanwhile, on the island, Boone is going to come up to Saeed and say, stay away from my sister. And Saeed, the badass is not going to take that easily. He says, are you giving me an order? Uh, and Boone says, it's just a friendly suggestion. If I were you, I'd listen. And Saeed, with this smile on his face, says, and what if I don't? And I love it. I Boone, love it. You realize this is the guy that, like, tortured Sawyer and self-exiled himself, right? Do, like, not, do, not, do not step up to Saeed. Yeah, also, uh, it's definitely not a friendly suggestion nor an order. Uh, Boone is outright threatening Saeed at this point, which, considering how much he gets Farkas later on, again, he's talking a bigger game, I think, than he's actually going to be able to, to put forward. Is there any universe where Boone in this episode is still being written as though he is somebody who uh, suffers from some form of mental illness? Do you think that that is still on the lens of the writing of this character in this episode? Because there is like there are these like far out looks from him. There's the way that he's like still like kind of like obsessively thinking about his sister. Uh, You could even maybe tie it up with the hallucinations that he has later in this episode. Do you think any of that is still on the radar? Any of that stuff from the series? Bible or not really if it is I feel like it's been justified with him being lovesick you know yeah. I think that you can certainly uh connote connotate those symptoms maybe with some facets of some sort of mental illness but I think that since we know what happens immediately before they get on oceanic flight 815 I think you they you can use that and I feel like the show uses that as a reason to justify not only a lot of his behavior here but a lot of his behavior towards Shannon in the previous 12 episodes too Totally. Uh, anyway, so Locke comes along. He interrupts. He wants Boone to come with him. And Boone tells Syed, I'll see you later. Syed says, you know where to find me. <laughs> Next to your sister. Next to your sister. We'll be hanging out. I've got more shoes to give to her. <laughs> so, yeah, Buck, Boone and Locke do go through the jungle here. And they do something so weird here, Josh. And it's not the slow-mo. But we get this sometimes in film and TV where they'll do, like, the montage of showing their trek. So we see, like several different moments of them in the jungle, yet they're still sustaining the same conversation. Uh, and it's it's a trope that, you know, I've always 
uh, it's irked me, but I've enjoyed it. Like the one where it's like, uh, I'll explain in the car and then cut to them like halfway there and being like, okay, let me finally explain to you what's going on. Like if you did it in real time, there'd be so many gaps in silence uh, between this com- them with this conversation about Saeed. But for the sake of the show, it all flows together nicely. It's fine. It, it is definitely one of the weaker points of the episode is this weird little montage where uh, they're talking about how like everyone's getting suspicious. They want... They want food. They want pork. And Locke's like, there's plenty of fruit, plenty of fish. What we're doing is so much more important than the boar. And they get to the hatch door, and we're led to understand that they've been coming out here for at least like a week at this point, and they've like barely cleaned the dirt off the hatch door. And Locke says, right now, this is our priority. And if that was true, guys... You can, you can excavate that a little bit more than what we've seen at this point, no? But Josh, you have to be thinking instead of cleaning, you know? Thinking, thinking is the gerund here. We cannot substitute any other verbs in there. I suppose that's true. We cut to the lost credits, and when we come back, we're, uh, we're embarking on sort of this two-pronged story. Uh, Hurley and Jack are both going to have some stories of their own through this episode. We're going to start with Hurley with Jack. Hurley's collecting all these leaves. He wants to have a doctor-patient conversation with Jack. He wants it to be confidential. Uh, Hurley is suffering from severe gastrointestinal distress. Uh, he, need, he needs to eat more fish back. He needs more fish back. He just doesn't have enough fish. Uh, Jin's catching a lot of fish. But sadly, he has it out for Hurley because Hurley dissed him on the uni back in the day, the sea urchin. Hurley says, I soiled his family honor. He hasn't looked me in the eyes ever since. Uh, Hurley. We thought we moved past this with the whole Chinese versus Korean stuff, which... We did not. I don't want to be a a Quan defender here, at least at this point. It's actually a very good episode for the Quans uh, after not seeing them for quite some time. But this has to be all in Hurley's mind, right? Because I can imagine if I'm Jin, I'd say at least 95% of the people refused eating the uni in pilot part two. It, I don't. I do not think. I think Hurley's making a much bigger deal out of this. Much like I think either one of you, you or I, as anxious individuals, would be like, "Oh my god, this person hates me because I did this specific thing to them." When it's like, no, you know, uh, you're the one of like ten people to do it to me. So like, no worries. I had no problem with you. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, Hurley and Jin will will come to appreciate each other quite a bit uh, as this series goes on. I I don't know that I read a lot of like animosity from Jin to Hurley in this episode so much as like, dude, you're ruining my fishing spot. Like, please, please yeah. And after Hurley showed, I'll get his, you a fish. <laughs> he showed his stripes at least, uh, you know, without that deleted scene of Jin actually catching the fish for Hurley. But uh, we'll talk about, I guess, Hurley revisiting the sea. I did look up the benefits and drawbacks of an all fruit diet and. Josh, I guess their outside consultation in writing this episode was, uh, you know, clear as day because apparently eating a lot of fruit does encourage bowel movements because there is a lot of fiber in fruit. And it may also lead to malnourishment, which as a result of malnourishment, uh, your body might slow down its metabolism to hold on to the stores, which, I mean, uh, Hurley can go to Charlie and be like, see, that's why I wasn't losing weight. It's because of the damn fruit. It's the dang fruit. Uh, Hurley runs off with all the toilet paper he's collected. He's got to add to the to the duty count. Uh, uh, we'll see if Dallin Servo updates that number. Oh boy, better stop podcast. it too. Uh, I also <laughs> realized in this conversation that Jack is that guy. I don't know if you have it like in your office or in your family life who will give you a weird retort instead of hello. Like here, Hurley says, "So Jack," and Jack goes, "So Hurley." 
Uh, and then last episode, you know, Kate says, we have a problem. And Jack goes, is this a we problem or a you problem? I think Jack is someone who wants to be so snippy and witty that he's never going to give you an outright hello. It's always going to be something, mm. you know, attempted to be some sort of jocular rib. Yeah. Well, Jack, uh, he, I don't know if you know this about him, but he took a stand-up comedy class uh, <laughs> yeah. at some point. He had well, it s- scheduled in between his uh, his flying sessions. Yeah. What's the deal with airline food? I know this because I can fly a plane, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So Jack is going to spy on Kate uh, in the jungle. Once again, Kate getting stalked by one of these uh, these thirsty bros in the jungle uh, as Jack is going to be peeping on Kate and she says, look, I know you're there. At least she doesn't throw a rock at him. Uh, <laughs> but what would she have done? She would, like, she would have thrown all of those gross little grayish yellow things at him. I don't think that yeah. would have had quite the same impact. More insult more than injury. But yeah, this is, I would also say maybe the re- one of the reasons why I would switch the running order here is the Jack and Kate stuff seems to have completely either written over or just uh moved on from how they ended things in whatever the case may be where jack walks away leaving kate in tears as she admits to quote-unquote killing a man maybe jack just wants this to be water under the bridge but it's weird to see these two interact this way we're almost like back to you know the i don't want to be eve of it all when they were like sort of friendly flirtation mode yeah well i think you know what? In in a lot of ways, I think that's very true to the characters. Like, the fact that it almost feels like nothing happened is very true to both of the way uh, that these two people cope with distress and cope with adversity. Um, and I actually do think that you can sense that there is something weird that has happened between the two of them. Like, some sort of, like, nebulous weirdness where, like, they're kind of, like tap dancing around something like the way that like kate says like this isn't a secret i'll i'll show you what i'm up to if you want to know jack's like all right uh yeah i would love that like there's just there does just like feel like this this little weirdness like neither of them are the types of person that will very easily apologize or very easily like explain where they're coming from emotionally uh so i actually think that the way that they deal with the awkwardness of whatever the case may be makes a lot of sense and i'm grateful that it makes a lot of sense because it means we don't really have to dwell on whatever the case may be very much at all like we're alive mike we made it through yeah uh we had a pretty good time talking it through but i'm pretty happy to never have to evaluate that episode again until at least we get to the airplane at the end of the season yeah, uh, I guess they sort of have planted the uh, grayish, yellowish ah, passion seeds in that relationship. Yeah, and in Sun's little garden, because Sun is growing the garden. Here we are, an iconic lost set piece that will be a part of the show in some way, shape, or form throughout the entire series. The Sun Garden here on the island. And Kate says that she just walked in here the other day. She was wandering while she was picking fruit. And here was Sun making a garden. They need more food because they're not getting enough pig. Uh, and everyone thinks this is a great, great idea. And, of course, Sun is very happy to be hearing all of this stuff because she knows that she's getting praised, but she doesn't want to let on to the fact that she knows she's being praised. Yes, uh, I'm all about Sun's secret garden. This is fantastic. Everything is wick here. Though I am a bit confused that Jack looks at the passion fruit seeds and he's like please tell me you found a coffee bar (laughs) it's very a to c thinking in terms of like okay passion fruit means starbucks and starbucks means coffee bar i don't necessarily think about that when i think about passion fruit seeds yeah is there is there like a like a passion fruit uh there's like a passion fruit tea i I guess was that even but that was was that still a thing at starbucks back in the early 2000s i don't know 
It's like a very like like passion fruit is uh is is well associated with teas like uh like a tea vana mm. uh, potentially um maybe I don't know is what he says is I hope you found a coffee bar is he is he hoping that it's like so stacked that it's gonna have tea selections like flavored tea selections is he like a passion fruit tea guy Jack mm, I don't know I mean like. <laughs> I, I feel like he would like tea, but only if there's something, uh, a little bit of something mixed in. Yeah. At least yeah. pre-Oceanic Flight 815. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go over to Boone and Locke. Uh, they could go for a glass of something, but they would like to shatter the glass. They would like to break the glass on this hatch they've found in the ground. The door is sealed shut. They think it may be cemented shut. Uh, Boone is narrating all of this while Locke is just like sitting there mortaring and pestling something in a bowl that he says is for later. Uh, it's like, I'm making tea. Yeah. For, it's for Jack. But I can't get the drink. consistency. It looks like pudding. I can't uh, get it past pudding. Yeah, it's like a, an old butterscotch pudding <laughs> is, what he's, is what he's making. Well, he's an older man. Maybe he's trying to make homemade Werther's Originals to put in the <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my God. I really miss hard candies. <laughs> <laughs> on banoffee pie and hard candies <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely uh all right so then this leads to uh not just my favorite scene of the episode but one of my favorite lock moments ever on lost comes in hearts and minds uh and is you know coming as part of a collaboration between uh you know the new showrunner of lost and one of the veteran writers of lost uh it's this incredible speech coming from lock that you just Gotta hear. Let's take it to sound number two. So not to be too difficult, but we've been coming here for two days just staring at this thing. Not really sure what we're supposed to be doing. Ludovico Bonorati. Michelangelo's father. He was a wealthy man. Had no understanding of the divinity in his son, so he beat him. No child of his was going to use his hands for a living, so... Michelangelo learned not to use his hands. Years later, a visiting prince came into Michelangelo's studio and found the master staring at a single 18-foot block of marble. Then he knew the rumors were true that Michelangelo had come in every day for the past four months, stared at the marble, and gone home for his supper. So the prince asked the obvious, what are you doing? And Michelangelo turned around and looked at him and whispered, Stola Verando. I'm working. Three years later, that block of marble was the statue of David. I love that. Oh, my God. I love that. Terry O'Quinn is the man. Terry O'Quinn is so good. And when they write John like Locke like that, when they when they write him as he's like a, a jack of all trades, even though somebody else has that name, uh, you know, somebody who just has uh, uh, his his knowledge is a mile wide and maybe, you know, I, I think an inch deep is not quite doing justice to the depth of the knowledge that he possesses as well. Uh, it's just it's so much fun. And giving this kind of dialogue to a guy like Terry O'Quinn uh, is just so smart. And I, I know, I suspect, Mike, that we have, uh, we have variant views on John Locke in this episode, at least to some degree. But one of the reasons why I love him so much in this episode is 
you know, moral alignment notwithstanding, <laughs> and that is worth questioning a hundred percent. He's just an expert in this episode. You know, like there is, you know, you talk about Michelangelo and Shredder. There's like a master splinter quality mm -hmm. to this man in this episode. That there's just something wise and unknown about him that just ramps up the intrigue surrounding John Locke in in a way that I I adore. And, you know, overall, in the grand scheme of things with John Locke, uh, a big part of the reason why he is my favorite character on Lost is because there's so much depth to him that he is able to have these moments where he is like a sage, where he is somebody with all of this knowledge and wisdom, yet he can also be not just frustrated, but like the most frustrated person on the island, uh, that he is capable of, of such great emotional range. He contains multitudes. Uh, I love that about him. But here in this episode, there is a confidence and a mysticism about him that is so heightened that is so alluring to me. Right. And you could say we'll certainly talk about whether or not that is warranted considering the uh, the missions he sends certain people on. But yeah, I mean, the way they show Locke this episode, that is what is so interesting to me as well. You know, it, it's showing some shades of series Bible Locke where I think they're really building him up as a presence that you can trust in. But to be completely candid, Locke comes off like a cult leader in this right. episode, which totally. is so enthralling where he's espousing this wisdom. And I think you could roll your eyes at like, yes, he's trying to be this intellectual by not just saying, hey, I'm sitting here thinking about it. Instead, it's it's him you know, going into this entire story. But I love this monologue so much, knowing what we know about John Locke. Of course, Locke would take solace in having this horrible parental figure, having this father who, I mean, not necessarily beat him, threw him out a window, much worse than beatings, and look at someone who came from a similar background as him. He was able to paint the Sistine Chapel. He was able to make his, you know, the statue of David. If Locke believes in a greater destiny for himself, that there has to be something more than this provincial life, the, the, the chair that he's been besotten to, and the life that he's been unfortunately exposed to for all of his number of years on this earth— you know, there has to be some twin destinies here. And I love the fact that, yeah, I can understand why Michelangelo would be a personal hero of him. We'll get into later as to whether or not there is validity behind this story. But, I mean, this doesn't come out of nowhere and that I do feel like Michelangelo might be one of Locke's heroes because of what he was able to overcome in seemingly similar situations. Yeah, and I think it is also worth pointing out uh, another commonality between Locke and Michelangelo is that they are both party dudes who well, love, love pizza. I would say that I think, I guess Hurley is the Michelangelo, I guess, yes. is, um, I guess Leo is Jack. By uh, default, even though he's got something in common with Raphael and they're both cool but rude. Well, I feel, rude. Like, I feel like Raph has to be Sawyer from that I perspective. Think he does. And I of think course, so. Donnie's got to be Saeed. Uh, yes, absolutely. Those are the, the those are the Lost Ninja Turtles. I think that's easy. Jack is uh, Leonardo, Sawyer is Raphael, Hurley is Michelangelo, Saeed is Donatello. Yeah, that holds up. 100%. Uh, ben is Krang. Uh, <laughs> Bebop and Rocksteady are uh, Miss Clue and Mikhail. <laughs> oh, God, no. We got to do better than that. <laughs> oh, man. They deserve better. Uh, that's really funny. Uh, we can figure that out as we go here. Uh, but yeah, but Boone has a great response to the story about the statue of David where he's like, we're not going to stare at this thing for four months, are we? <laughs> and he has like, Ian Summerall, there's just like a weird little side smirk 
Like, yeah. I can't tell if it's a smirk or a smile, but I guess it's him, like, sort of trying to curry favor while Locke, while simultaneously, to your point, being like, oh my god, does this dude want me to sit out here yeah, for please a third don't. of a year? <laughs> I hope that we're going to be picked up before that, but, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but, no, Locke is saying, we just got to figure it out. We got to look at it. We got we to gotta study the problem. How do you open a hatch with no handle, no latch, no discernible way of opening it? Um, all right, so we go back to uh, Boone's past. Another flashback. He's going to go to Sydney. He's going to meet Brian, one of a couple of Brian's from Australia. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're gonna get into that i know that we were quibbling about like ray mullen and richard and richard malkin like how did they come up with these very similar names forgetting that they're gonna be yeah. two men with the same name in back-to-back episodes from the same but country uh, but but luckily we're talking about uh both brian's are just like full-blown douches so mm-hmm. you know and they're both gonna be pretty light in terms of how present they are on lost so i don't mind just uh taking them as the douches brian uh, and so this is Douche Brian 1. He's played by Charles Measure. Uh, I remember him from, from V uh, a little bit, the Elizabeth Mitchell uh, reboot of V that she left lost to, to headline, which is a better show than it, uh, than it probably ought to have been as far as these like uh, attempts of chasing the, the lost dragon. Uh, not like a, not a, not a fair, like a fully fair thing to describe <laughs> V as considering V existed in the 1980s. So it's right. a reboot, but it did feel like they were trying to reboot it with a lostian sensibility it's a better show uh than than some of those uh and charles measure had a had a cool role he was like some sort of mercenary on it so he's better on that than he is here on lost where he's playing brian douche brian who is shannon's quote-unquote abusive boyfriend but you actually get the sense that like they're just conning Boone, right? Like, it doesn't seem like he's actually hitting Shannon. Mm, well, it's interesting because I will give it up to Shannon in that, you know, she's, I think Sawyer, who uh, will run to Boone later on, would commend her for her acting job here where, you know, she walks out with her, like, Christina Aguilera circa 2002 sparkly top on. <laughs> and yeah. she, like, is when she's talking to Boone, she has this really interesting thing where, you know, what she's saying is like, oh, don't worry, Boone, you know, uh, I was just overreacting here. Why don't you come by tomorrow? But she's doing this thing where, like, she's skirting his gaze. She's tucking her hair behind her ears where her body language is exuding to Boone. Don't trust what I'm saying it's not okay. And I think that's right. what leads Boone to continue to pursue this. And granted, this is not the, the first time that Shannon has run this con, but I have to hand it to her that she's got a pretty good job at, you know, tugging at his heartstrings in this moment. His heart and his mind. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, we'll go back to the island. Hurley comes to Jin. He's got a spear in his hand. He's like, I know you don't want me to, to have fish. Just point me in the right direction. I'll take care of my own business with my own tools. And Jin says something to Hurley, uh, and Hurley says, you just said something mean to me, didn't you? And Jin just kind of looks back at him. Uh, We've got no confirmation that Jin is saying anything mean here. He may, like, we have no idea. I know that you you briefly learned Korean for the sake of House of the Rising Sun, but in one ear, out the other, I assume. Yeah, I only learned Korean specifically for Kwan-focused episodes. So unfortunately, I uh, shirked on my studies this time around. So, like, we don't know what he's saying. Uh, He might be saying, like, Look, don't embarrass yourself. I'm going to go fishing. I'll get you a fish. I didn't realize that you wanted a fish. I was mildly insulted by what you did with the sea urchin several weeks ago. Uh, but like water under the bridge. I hear that you've got the stomach ache. I hear that you're pooping. Uh, let me let me see what I can do for you. And Hurley's like, you just said something mean, did you? He's like, no, I just said something very empathetic and helpful. Yeah, for the person who was able to translate what Sun and Jin were saying to each other in the pilot, I might call upon your services to translate what Jin was saying 
this episode because I can imagine that it was probably very like tongue in cheek. Uh, what the writers were saying that we have no idea as an audience how he's reacting and how it may or may not uh, be underlined by Daniel Day Kim's performance. You know, he could be giving Hurley glowing reviews, but just because of this through the steely gaze of Jin at the time, Hurley's mm-hmm. taking it the wrong way. All right. Uh, let's go back to Boone and Locke and let's get let's get physical. <laughs> physical. Uh, it's going to get a little Olivia dicey. Olivia Boonch and John. Yeah, it's going to get a little dicey between Boone and Locke here uh, with sound number three. Let's let it rip. You know, we're going to have to tell them. Tell them what? What we found. You know, they're not going to keep believing that we're coming out here hunting. We never go they're back. They're not ready. They won't understand it. I don't think I understand it. That's the problem. Look, at least I gotta tell Shannon. Why? What do you mean, why? She's my sister. Why do you care about her so much? You don't know her, man. She's smart and she's special in a lot of ways. Fair enough. She's been asking me about this. I can't keep lying to her. You mean you can't keep lying to her, or... You can't stand the way she makes you feel because you're lying to her. Both, whatever. Look, she can keep a secret. You're sure? Yes. I'm sure. No, I mean, are you sure you want to do this? I got to get her off my back. She keeps asking me about this. She keeps asking about you, about the whole thing. You sure you've thought through the ramifications? Yes. So be it. And if you haven't watched the episode in a while and you didn't quite figure out what happened at the end of that scene, uh, Locke just knocks Boone out with a single punch to the back of the head with his knife. Yeah. It's like at this point, like maybe we should piece together that like Chef Jeff was carving up the pig while Locke went out and, and knocked out Saeed a few episodes back. Like now having revisited this, it's like, ah, I guess I see it. Yeah. That's kind of his move. Yeah. Well, so Locke's <laughs> playing like little bunny foo-foo, you know, <laughs> taking all the losties yeah. and bopping them on the head. I mean, speaking of hindsight... Wow, if I ever do First One Out again, uh, Bunny Foo-Foo being the theme of the First <laughs> One Out season, it's a great idea. I don't think it's going to happen. I think the podcast is retired, but uh, just in case inspiration strikes, that would be a good one. Speaking of hindsight, there's something about this scene that gives me a lot more appreciation for it, knowing what we know in terms of Boone's feelings for Shannon. Like, you look at lines of, she's smart and special in a lot of ways, or especially, she can keep a secret. And knowing exactly what happens between the two of them before they land on the island, there is so much depth in that. And we'll certainly get into, you know, whether or not that depth is necessarily fun to deal with. But something that I really do appreciate about this episode is, even though the Boon stuff is weird, there is stuff throughout that is hinting towards this big surprise that I know I definitely didn't pick up on in my first couple of rewatches, but now you start to see why exactly Boone is behaving and feeling this certain way, especially when it comes to feeling he needs to divulge this secret to Shannon uh, because he had a secret divulged to Shannon very soon before they ended up on the island. Totally. Absolutely. Um, And then Locke just like punching Boone into unconsciousness. Uh, definitely a dick move. Now, hard to frame it any other way, 
but very effective, Mike. Like, I mean, just like you have to like kind of like tip your cap at like, wow, Locke. This is a one punch wonder. Yeah, he's pretty, I mean, pretty look, good. He is one punch man. Uh, he has the the lack of hair to prove it. I mean, we haven't talked about this at all, but one of the telltale lines that has echoed throughout all six seasons of Lost is effectively a rendition of "Are you sure?" And I feel like this is the first time we can really speak about it because it was in the clip as well that Locke asks essentially Boone if he's sure several times, essentially asking for his consent to punch him in the back of the head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you sure this is what you want to do? The unspoken part being, because if you are, I'm going to punch you in the back of the head and put some trippy goop on there and make you confront your dead sister in the jungle. Yeah, And exactly. was like, yeah, no, totally. I'm into it. Yeah. You, you got to read the fine print on the contract, Boone. He's like, I consent. And so he wakes up tied up in the jungle. Uh, he's tied up in this very strange position. He looks like uh, um, Chris Elliott in Scary Movie 2. It's a very specific image, but that's the first thing I thought of, where like his one hand is tied up against his body and his other hand is behind his back. I mean, it's like Jigsaw. This is like, uh, this. Is, he's like, he's got like a full-on Saw prank that he's playing on him. Not that like Saw was about pranks so much <laughs> as it was about You just game. got sawed. Yeah, you just got sawed, Carrie Elways, as you're chewing through your foot to get out of there spoiler alert i don't think he actually chews through the foot no uh but Locke is make he's still working on the paste he's not finished uh with the brick and mortaring that he's doing uh and he's gonna he's gonna put it on boone's head because an untreated wound out here could get infected um the common i believe wisdom surrounding this is that this paste is what drugs boone and causes him to hallucinate the monster coming for Shannon and killing Shannon. Do you buy that as canon? Canon Rutherford? Uh, is this is is this sorry? Is this is this something that you believe is what happened here? Or do you think that there's another explanation? Is it the monster coming for Boone? Is it the monster knowing John Locke needs a disciple just as I need John Locke to be my disciple? So if Locke can get somebody recruited to his side, that's yet another set of hands in my corner. Um, so maybe I should be convincing Boone to see some wonky stuff that he's not actually seeing in the jungle. Is there any connection there? Do you think that the monster is actively actually involved in any of this in any capacity? I don't think so, which oddly enough, maybe it's uh, an unintentional foreshadowing to Locke and the monster becoming one. But I feel like this is and granted Locke's going to say later on that I don't think he necessarily knew that Boom would hallucinate Shannon getting attacked by the monster. But I personally like it more if it's a concept Rather than, obviously, it's not going to be a literal thing because Shannon is alive and well, as we see at the end of the episode. But if it's more of a manifestation. But that does also beg the question as to, you know, how did Locke know about this? These these uh, specific medicinal properties. Why does this never get brought back up again? We will see Boone. Uh, ah, we'll, I mean, we'll, but we'll, doesn't it? Doesn't we'll, it? We have the doesn't, sweat lodge, right? Doesn't, doesn't Locke, not only the sweat lodge, Mike, but in that very same episode, we find out John Locke is a pot farmer. Who knows what other kinds That's of true. strange strains, Stragoy, he's got at the pot farm. 
That's true, actually. So maybe he does have more of a concept of hallucinogens. I know, I know he fancies himself a hunter, but there is precedent for John Locke the farmer. Yeah, putting son to shame in terms of his uh, <laughs> his, yeah. his own fauna skills. So, oh my god, I, mean, I, lo- I love thinking about the alternate scenarios, like in season three when Charlie and Hurley come to like get wasted with Desmond, and they're all just like chugging McCutcheon. I love the alternate unused uh, episode of Lost where Locke sits down with Desmond. He's like, hey, Desmond, you want to trip balls right now? I've got this really weird sesame paste that's going to make you see all sorts of shit. But first, let me hit you on the back of the head. (laughs) All right, we need to get an open wound. Yeah, well, that's the thing. How do you want it? I mean, I guess, because I I think it is a hallucinogen. It needs to be applied, like, directly into the system to put it in the bloodstream. And I I think they haven't been to the staff yet. He's not able to inject it into the system, so he has to cause an open wound. Uh, I've never done acid. I can't cop to that. Uh, But I don't know that you do acid by like applying it to your open wound on your head i just don't know any extras out there feel free to correct us uh yeah yeah uh but anyway it's great he's he's gonna he's gonna slather that onto boone's head uh i think you know fun to think about what are the possibilities of like is this all Locke's intention is this something medicinal that he's authentically putting on boone's head and then like when he sees boone at the end of the episode is he mesmerized and amazed because boone just had an experience in, on the island right like the island just gave him something rather than he just gave boone something i think you could read it both ways depending on how you want to read Locke's agency in all of this i don't know that i necessarily have a preference so much as a- having seen this episode now um uh through this time i, I think that I can see those angles. Mm. Um, speaking of angles, yeah. uh, Locke is going to throw a knife down at Boone's knees, uh, really precise, as we have seen him do before. He's going to tell Boone, I'm doing this because it's time for you to let go of some things. You're going to uncut yourself and go do west of here. As soon as you've got proper motivation, you'll be able to reach that knife. Uh, and uh, he walks away, and Boone is shouting for Locke. And we get all these like very strange camera angles as Boone is looking around the jungle all paranoid, just tied up in this jungle of mystery. Yeah, see, that's one reason why, again, I would lean towards maybe the more hallucinogenic theories is because we get a fisheye here, Josh. I know we get fisheyes later on with Hurley and Jin, quite literally, but I, I thought I saw a fisheye when they pan down from the canopy into Boone being tied up. Uh, and I know we talk about the weird manner in which he's tied up, but it actually is a very interesting rigging system that Locke has where, you know, when Boone leans forward, he is, while he's moving one hand, he's tightening the knot on the other one. And it's sort of a representation of, uh, you know, I guess if Boone has Locke in one hand and Shannon in the other, it's not necessarily uh, choose one. It's if you're, you know, dedicating your time to one, you are strangling the other one. And I think that's what Locke's really trying to get across to Boone here is, hey, if Shannon's, you know, got got you uh, your left hand in a bind here and you're trying to reach for that knife to cut her free at the same time, uh-huh. you're choking out this hatch project. And right. I want to make sure that you cut yourself loose of these ropes. So you can focus specifically on what your right hand is doing to spite your left. Yeah, he wants to own them. You know, he's wants he wants Boone to be his constant right now. Um, in the past, we we get one of the great earliest instances of the interconnectivity of these characters in Lost. And this is another thing. It's another thing that's easy to forget, uh, that this comes in hearts and minds, uh, that Boone is at the police station in Sydney. He's trying to report what's going on with Shannon. I think that the big takeaway here is you you remember that this is like where the Australian police officer is going to say, 
you and your sister have different last names. Uh, no blood <laughs> relation. <laughs> Let's spell that out again. No blood relation. So if you guys make out later or even have sex, it's not going to be that weird. Uh, like That is what you remember the most from this episode, I think, or from this flashback. Uh, but in this flashback as well, you're going to see before Boone has this conversation uh, with, the, with, the, with the officer that Sawyer's in the background. And he's like screaming bloody murder. And we don't know yet why Sawyer is mm-hmm. in Australia at this point in the story. But you hear him saying, hey, Croc Hunter, welcome no one wants to hear my side of the story. We will, honey, just in like 10 episodes from now. <laughs> it's sooner than that, but it's still like it's going to take a minute. Uh, but it's great. It's just like this idea that these people are fated to be here. They're fated to be in each other's lives. Uh, just a really, really cool early nod at that idea. Yeah, this is game changing. From my perspective. And I mean, we're actually going to see, uh, you know, it's almost interconnectedness where next time we see Sawyer in this police station, I believe it's when we're going to see Hurley on the TV getting arrested, too. Mm-hmm. So it's like <laughs> this police station apparently is just a big portal. But this is such I mean, I just remember my mind being blown from this revelation because we had known, obviously, of like Boone and Shannon knew each other. Michael and Walt knew each other. But we had no idea that these people were interconnected in any way. We thought they just got on the plane. Maybe there was some thought from the Lockean perspective, okay, they're fated to be here for some sort of reason. But seeing these characters share the same piece of scenery before getting on Oceanic Flight A-15 opened up a world of possibilities. And I'm so glad they did it, because I'm sure that gave the writers a break, too. We will see. We'll certainly get to a point where we say, okay, maybe the runners are running out of flashback material, and that's why they start to flash forward and flash sideways. But this is an opportunity for them to really, I mean, screw the Easter eggs. You're just giving out a bunch of chocolate bunnies here uh, with three on the side of them by saying, hey, there there are some other characters around, and they're going to interact in ways that you might not even know. Yeah. Um, the flashback continues after this police officer says he's not going to do anything about Shannon and her boyfriend. E- even when he pulls out the card of, you might know my mother, Sabrina Carlisle, the American yeah. wedding dress magnet. Yeah, she's the Martha Stewart of the wedding industry. I don't know if you've heard. Uh, this cop says, sadly, we are the police, not the dating police. Sick burn! Ooh, <laughs> yeah, went to Saeed camp. Uh, speaking nice. of Saeed, I will say... Get some I, aloe. As much as we're talking about the, the glowering that Boone did in the beginning of the episode, I can sort of understand why Boone is so disapproving of Saeed. And it, it's not like, uh, you know, he felt that Saeed's going to run a con on him, just like Brian and those other guys did. But it's clear at this point, whether he knew it or not, that... Boone feels that Shannon has a horrible taste in men. And I think that him seeing her take another mate just has all those instances flashing back in his mind of all these people that she's gotten with. And, you know, uh, either, you know, again, this is all false narrative, but, you know, gotten uh, ended badly for her. And so I can imagine why he would want to be protective of her in that scenario. Again, even if it is false, it's probably uh, habitual for him, instinctual. Uh, for him to just, you know, necessarily be wary of uh, one of his sister's prospective mates, even though Boone doesn't really have money he can pay Saeed off with on the island. So that's why he has to take a different tactic. All right. But anyway, so we we go to the marina and here in the marina is where we are going to see Boone. Like, listen, 
If I can't hire the dating police, I shall become the <laughs> dating police. Uh, and he's gonna he's gonna buy off Brian. And Brian, uh, he's gonna say, Brian, not gonna waste your time. Listen, the episode is really moving at a pace. Uh, can't can't spend too much time. We're already doing double flashback scenes. This is weird. Uh, so here's the here's the score: twenty five thousand dollars, twenty five big ones is what I'm gonna pay you to leave Shannon. You're the third guy I've paid to leave Shannon. And Brian is so offended. Twenty five thousand dollars. Are you serious, you monster? My love for Shannon is worth fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> I I pay, cost twenty five thousand alone to get my little Asian character tattoo on my arm. Yeah, I don't know. Like fifty k, like you boosted it from twenty five k to fifty k. You don't feel like you've got any more negotiability, especially when Boone immediately responds from fifty k to like without any protestation whatsoever, just starts scribbling away at his checkbook. I think that's where Brian says, oh, so yeah, we can get to 50K and just uh, hop, skip, and a jump away. Why don't we knock that up to 150K? Yeah, Brian's bargaining skills is maybe uh, not up to snuff here. Though, I don't know what it is, Josh, but between Thomas and now Brian, apparently, like, Boone's talking Brian into doing what Thomas did, which is to move out of his own house. And leave Shannon behind. So I guess mm-hmm. Australians are just so polite that they'll be able to move out of their own residence if it helps, uh, you know, uh, they're ready to just pack up and move on in a moment's notice. A house is not a home in Australia. I suppose not. All right, well, let's leave the past behind. Let's go back to the island. Kate's going to be hanging out with Sun. Uh, Kate's kind of just, like, talking out loud. She's talking about how she was in Australia because she was on her way to Bali. Uh <sighs> She was uh, somehow found her way to L.A. instead, which, of course, we know how that was going to go down. Uh, Kate says, I was looking forward to going to an island. Careful what you wish for. And Sun smiles. And Kate, the MVP, Kate Austin, uh, she says, whoa, wait a minute. You speak English. Except she should have put it in all caps. She should have yelled it. (laughs) You speak English. (laughs) Yeah. And Sun says, don't tell anyone, please. And Kate's like, oh, my God, I got one. I got it. Yeah, I will say, uh, I mean, after all the Kate lying, extraneously so in last episode, not a huge fan of opening up a scene with another Kate lie. uh, But I mean, Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that maybe her next stop was going to be Bali. I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. She's leaving Ray's peach farm or his jarred pear farm, if you prefer, <laughs> before things go pear shaped on her. You know, she's going to she's going to get out of there. We don't know where she's going next. Bali's not terribly far away from Australia. Uh, I mean, it's far, but like for Australians, it's not terribly far. It's far for you and me. Uh, I think that it would have would have made some sense for her to be going to Bali next. Well, if we if we accept the premise of Kate as a globetrotter to begin with, I think it makes some sense. Yeah, she's got sick dunks. Uh, yeah, she, it's, it is true that she does travel a lot, but I will say, Sun completely folds like a house of cards here. Like, she could have just very easily passed off the, uh, you know, the thing of, we experience this when we're in foreign countries as English speakers of, like, if someone's speaking with you and it seems like they're smiling, like you smile along with them and nod, even if you don't necessarily know what they're saying. Like she could have just easily gone along with the Oh, bit. I do that with fellow English speakers. Yeah, exactly. Like- <laughs> but as soon as Kate's like, nope, jig is up. She's like, oh, okay, yes. Yeah. And maybe her telling Michael like opened up that door a bit for this to not be something that she keeps completely secret. But yeah, I mean, 
I would say of all the people to confess something to, Kate is number one considering how good she is at holding in her own secrets to her, you know, detriment. Yeah. Uh, well, she knows now, and kudos to Kate for getting that out of Sun. Um, meanwhile, in, in additional Quan-related activity, something incredible is occurring. Let us take a listen to what is going on on the beach as Jin and Hurley are fishing side by side. Damn it! You know what? Fine. You win, okay? You happy now? Keep your damn fish. I'm out of here. Ow! Ow, ow, ow! ow! I stepped on a friggin' urchin! Ow, you understand me? You understand infection? Dang green amputation? Ow! Ow, my God! Ow! Ow! Oh. Oh. Ow. oh, you gotta do something for me. Oh. You're gonna have to pee on my foot, man. It'll stop the venom. I saw it on TV. Just do it. Oh. No, just pee on it, man. You need to pee. Pee on it. Pee on my foot. I'll lose. Just do it. I'll lose my foot if you don't. Just pee. Pee on it. Pee on No. I was gonna say, uh, you, you, if you're if we're quoting Alan Shemper, uh, I realize that maybe this should have been called Hearts and Farts and Minds. Uh, hearts and Farts and Crafts. Uh, God, it's so good day by day. Um, oh well, what we're what we're what we're referencing, if not outright quoting, this is without a doubt a Survivor reference. There is there's no question in my mind. I'm sure we will get into it a little bit in the in the others, but just to preempt that, what Hurley is talking about here when he's saying, You have to pee on my foot, I've stepped on a freaking urchin, I've got poison, there's venom, you have to pee on me in order to remove the venom. I saw it on TV. This is a man who is talking about John Carroll. Uh, having gotten a similar wound, needing it to be peed upon by one Kathy Vavrick O'Brien. There is no question about this in my mind that this is a Survivor Marquesas shout-out deliberately. Yeah, the only other remote possibility is, I believe, I can't remember if the episode of Friends, where I think it's Phoebe... Or maybe Rachel, who gets stung by a... Or, or maybe Monica, actually, who gets stung by a jellyfish at the beach. And I think it's Joey has to pee on her. I think that might have aired. But that's a different sea creature. And I think that the uh, the dangers of a sea urchin puncture versus a jellyfish sting are, like, night and day. And considering how the show was initially pitched as Survivor meets Castaway... You can only imagine this is a callback to one of its island-based inspirations. Absolutely, absolutely. And I refuse to entertain any other notions. And it is it is so great to watch. So, so, so funny. Hurley is the best. Uh, it just makes you want an alliance between Hurley and Kathy V.O. Uh, or even if Pappy could make it out on the island. Or a certain era of Pappy. Yeah. A certain image of Pappy, perhaps. Yeah, uh, uh, but this is this is so... It's so funny. So goddamn funny. And it's I, so funny. It's just, I mean, between Hurley barreling at the top of his lungs and Jin just, like, frantically trying to respond, Hurley, because of the language barrier, just hurling, pee on it, pee, you need to pee, 
pee. Just the repetition of the phrase pee on it is so funny. We see, I guess, part two of, uh, again, Hurley in the water with Charlie. When Charlie gets all wet, Hurley ends up dragging Jin down in the water. When Jin's trying to help Hurley to the shore, Jin, Jin just wanted to go out and get some peaceful fishing done. And now he has this guy yelling at him in a different language to pee on his foot. But even Jin understands Hurley's intention and flat out says no. Nope, no, not doing it. No way. Definitely not peeing on you, total stranger, who probably doesn't even need to be peed upon in this moment. Uh, so funny. It's just it's just hysterical. Um, let's get to another tandem, and let's get to another sound, in fact. Back-to-back sounds here on Down the Hatch this week uh, as uh, a less funny scene, though there there is something funny in this scene that I'm, that I'm looking forward to, to hashing out. Uh, but I believe... I think that this is the first, I, I think you noted this, Mike, that this is like the first true Locke and Saeed scene, certainly that I can remember of the series. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to pull this clip is because, you know, it's an interesting scene at least. We find out a bit more about Locke and we definitely find out a bit more about the magnetic anomalies that we've been talking about the past couple of episodes. But yeah, I, I really racked my brain and usually when we see Locke and Saeed, you know, it was in a... Uh, you know, bigger groups. I guess aside, setting, yeah. yeah. I guess aside from Locke giving Saeed the knife that he used to stab Sawyer, this is the first time these two big brains are really sort of sitting down and hashing things out, which is crazy to say. I guess they did have that scene uh, where where Saeed comes to investigate Locke, but I feel like this is different. This do- yeah. this does feel like there's uh, and and I certainly think uh, what we'll talk through here uh, it connects very powerfully to a much later scene between, I was going to say Locke and Saeed, but I guess it's between Saeed and Terry O'Quinn. Um, but let's hear the sound. Hi. I didn't hear you. Sorry. Sneakier than I give myself credit for. What are you doing out here? We were hunting. Boone thought I should take the afternoon off. Boone is hunting. Boy's eager to learn. Think you'll catch anything? Nope. What are you doing out here, Saeed? Orienteering. I'm trying to make something of Russo's maps, but... There's nothing to make. Exactly. Well, you made a compass. I haven't seen one of those since I was a... Weebelo. What's a Weebelo? Just halfway between a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout. And what does a Weebelo do? Gets badges, mostly. Uh, ties knots, identifies birds. I wasn't the most popular kid. I'll leave you to it. Here. Maybe this will help your cause. Don't you need this? Not anymore. Josh, were you ever a wee, were you ever a wee below? What's a wee below? Uh, a wee below, the enemy of the wombat. Uh, of course not. No, I do believe I was a wee below. Uh, I think I was a wee below. It's definitely in Cub Scouts. Definitely didn't get as high as like proper Boy Scout. Um, uh, and some conflicting information of wee below standing for either we be loyal Scouts. Or an acronym for Wolf, Bear, Lion, Scout, which is the the badges kids could get. 
Oh, I was going to say, like, one of those things is not like the other. Uh, I know yeah. they, that kids can be ferocious, but I believe actually from what I looked up that actually both is true. Like, I think it started as Wolf, Bear, Lion, Scout, but I believe when, when uh, they stopped earning Lion badges, then they changed it to Weeby Loyal Scouts, which uh, is yeah. also not grammatically correct, so maybe they don't give out badges for that. Should we be giving out Wiggler's Weebelows badges for runners-up in the Lindelof here on the podcast? Yeah, but what is the badge going to have on it? I don't know. <laughs> we got to figure that out. Got to figure out what a what a what a loyal scout would look like here uh, down the hatch. Yeah, maybe so maybe maybe great. Scout Cloudly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is great for this is great for a few reasons. Uh, obviously, like just like sort of like the power between seeing these two characters like meeting in a moment that doesn't have nearly the same tension as the first time that they talked. Right. Uh, a, few, a few episodes back, um, but also this is this is a great moment because. It's going to connect so hard to season six when Saeed has been sent out into the jungle with a dagger to go and find the man in black and kill the man in black and don't let him talk to you or he's got you. And then Locke shows up uh, and Saeed plunges the dagger into not Locke's heart. Uh, And here, Locke emerging from the jungle and Saeed standing up with the knife in hand, right? Like, I mean, like just the way that these two moments interplay with each other, just another great example of the way that the final season intersects with its own history. I think that that's really, really great. Um, The the clues about the odd electromagnetic activity on the island, the fact that the the compass is not quite working the right way, uh, that that it's the, the magnetized qualities Uh, We're not getting true north out here on the island. And I think that that speaks on on a grand meta level to the glory of Lost, Mike, where we are always moving forward on this show. But is it true north? Maybe not. Maybe it's north-ish most of the time. We're not always barreling towards extraordinarily satisfying answers necessarily. It's not necessarily clear that the people steering the ship know exactly where we are going, but vaguely we know the general idea. Uh, so there's just a lot going on in this interaction that I, that I truly, truly love. But on continuing with that meta-narrative, the optimal way to watch the show that I think we've been espousing for quite some time is to be the lock, to not be the Saeed. You can grind a piece of uh, you know, narrative uh, steel against a magnet all you want, but to enjoy the show at this fullest, in my opinion, you need to give away that compass and say, I don't need it anymore. And be guided instead by your own faith and your gut. I think the less you pay attention to some of the more hard and fast rules uh, that surround maybe the mythology behind the show, and the more you focus on what these characters make you feel, that's going to lead you in the true direction. And that's why you know John Locke comes across so wise, at least from this perspective, and it's a great uh, ending note for the scene as well, because, again, it's another symbol of how Locke has become intrinsically tied to the island from his perspective. He doesn't need some sort of piece of metal to tell him where to go. He even denied that piece of metal back when Richard Alpert came to his house all yeah, those years true. back. Uh, he's going he's gonna to be his own compass. He's going to find his own, his own true north to the point where he assumes that Boone can go west. And uh, speaking of, you know, echoes of future seasons, uh, when we get to our next sound... Uh, we'll, we'll definitely let's put a needle in that and we'll get to that next time. And of course, we know uh, there is no true north on the island. It is Dominic Monaghan who is out here on Lost and not Elijah Wood from <laughs> The Lord of the Rings. 
family. Yes, uh, though. Shout out to all you North fans out there. Yes, though, uh, and luckily no uh, Kathy Bates as a an, an Inuit person. But you know no. what? Locke does tell Boone to go into the West, so maybe uh-huh. there are some yeah. more connections there. So back in the jungle with Boone, he starts hearing Shannon screaming for help. This is what we heard at the start of this podcast. Uh, she's screaming, I'm tied up. He's like, I'm tied up. Oh, my God. It's, what a coincidence. You hear the monster screaming, Shannon screaming. And uh, what sound cannot convey is the the extraordinary pain from Boone as he is leaning forward through his uh, his jigsaw rope contraption to get the knife. If you're only listening to it audio only, you would think that Boone has something in common with Hurley in this episode. <laughs> Too uh, much fruit! <laughs> All that papaya was a mistake! Uh, but he's able to get the knife, he cuts himself free, he tracks down Shannon, quote-unquote Shannon, he cuts her free, uh, and then they hide out in a tree in the jungle of mystery as the monster is roaring by, uh, and the monster's just smashing against the tree again and again and again and again. It's very, very, very scary as we cut to commercial. And maybe is that a symbol as to if we now knowing the, I guess, rules of the monster uh, that this was not for real? Because as we know, for some reason, the banyan trees are like kryptonite to the monster. So do you think, <laughs> do you think the fact that this monster was touching the trees means that uh. this is not the OG? Oh, good question. Good question. Well, I mean, it can't really, it can't get further in. And you would think that the monster would be able to leak into the tree, uh, right? Like, you think it's little wispy tendrils would be able to get deeper in. I don't remember, because I think uh, Left Behind is the other big one when you have uh, Kate and Juliet hiding out from the monster. I will also say, uh, welcome back, Man in Black. It's been a long, long time. And I think that's another reason why I would want this to be the reintroduction back to Lost in 2005, because it's been quite some time since we've regarded this monster as a big threat. It's been mentioned a couple times, but even though it's only hallucinated, supposedly, I like the fact that we are reminding ourselves that amidst all this craziness with Ethan and Rousseau and interpersonal stuff that, oh yeah, there's a crazy monster on the island. There is indeed. Uh, Meanwhile, Saeed's hanging out with Jack... And Saeed plays a game with Jack where he's like, which way is north? And Jack looks at Saeed. He's like, are you kidding me? You think I'm an idiot? The sun sets over there, so it's north is that way, you dummy. Uh, It doesn't say it quite like that. Uh, And Saeed says, yeah, that's what I would think too, but there's a magnetic anomaly uh, because north should be that way, but this compass is saying north is this way. Uh, just kidding. Compass is defective, obviously. That's the only thing that's going on here. I mean, it makes uh, sense, given that Saeed has now completely dismissed the whispers, that he is just totally in, like, island denier camp. Of, yes. Oh, he's in deep denial of what's going on yeah. in this jungle right now. So he's still trying to ascribe some meaning to it of, like, okay, maybe there would be a, uh, this could be a major magnetic on me, or maybe the, the compass is broken. It's not like, I don't know, there's some sort of weird room system of rooms underneath the ground that's regulating a large magnetic uh, field no, that might yeah, be impeding no anything. Absolutely not. Definitely not. That sounds strange. Uh, nothing like that could happen. Uh, but he says, this is the compass Locke gave me. I saw him east of here walking through the jungle. At least I think it's east. Uh, meanwhile, Boone and Shannon, they're in the trees. They start to peep out of the trees. Monster seems to have gone away. Uh, and Shannon's like, what'd you do to that psycho Locke? And he goes, let's go back to Camp Shannon. Shannon says, uh, I knew you guys were, and he interrupts her. I know she made a crack before of like, oh, were you out with your boyfriend? Do you think right. Shannon really thinks that Boone and Locke are hooking up? Yeah, like even like Nightmare Shannon, like Nightmare like Vision Shannon was yeah. like, you guys are totally boning Boone. 
He's like, stop it. Well, I mean, that would be Boone's worst nightmare if the girl he's crushing on is like, oh, you're into that other guy, right? You're into the old dude. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I guess it makes sense. Um, The flashback, penultimate flashback. Boone goes back to Shannon. Let's get out of this country. But Brian, douche Brian, Brian 1 is still here. Came an hour early. Boone starts to put together that Shannon scammed him out of his money. And he goes, this whole thing's a setup. And Brian says, she's just getting what she's owed. And in this moment, I'm team Brian, I got to be honest, because Boone, uh, he says to Shannon, he goes, oh, you little bitch. That's his quote. Uh, It's a very, very, very mean and aggressive thing to say to, to Shannon in that moment. And Brian steps in. And Boone, like, tries to push Brian, and Brian's like, yeah, you don't push me. I'm Brian. <laughs> yeah, I I'm built up a- arm strength from hosing down picnic tables at the marina. You don't want some yeah. of this. Yeah, and so he gives it to Boone. He, he, honestly, I kind of feel like Boone bought what he paid for. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I don't know. Because I feel like Boone has a right to be justifiably angry if he lost <laughs> yeah, $50,000. He, right be- he has a right to be angry, but I don't think that he should be, like, Picking a fight with Brian, and I think that part of that is the shoving of Brian, but I think also like using the harsh language towards Shannon with Brian in the room, inadvisable and uncool. To be fair, though, I feel like Brian might have stepped in a bit too much with him being like, no, she's just getting what she deserves, which, to be fair, is accurate. We'll find out later. Uh, I was actually debating giving an LVP point to Sabrina Carlisle. Uh, who is, <laughs> she's not even here. She's not here, but she is the one who is withholding money from Shannon. Well, we well, do have that. We have that precedent, don't we? We have the precedent of giving uh, an LVP to Anthony Cooper, so if you'd like to revise that later on. I mean, I feel uh, like if there's a difference between denying Shannon money and causing Sawyer's parents to commit murder-suicide. Uh, but, Fair enough. But I, I feel like, and we'll, I'm, we'll definitely have opportunities to give out LVPs to Sabrina Carlisle when we get to uh, abandon the Shannon episode, but I don't know. I feel like Brian's inserting himself a bit too much when he's like, yeah, I know your situation. Like, clearly, there's something intimate going on here. And maybe it's because he knows he can absolutely farkus the crap out of Boone in this moment. Maybe it's because he saw Boone and realized that Boone always apparently likes to wear button-up shirts that don't button all the way up. They have, like, two or three buttons exposed to show off that lovely in Summer Alder chest. But I don't know. I I wouldn't (laughs) say I'm, like, sympathetic to Boone here, but I feel like... I actually felt a little bad that he ended up, he got rocked both emotionally and physically in this case. It was just all a big blur to him in this moment. I just love that we're using Farkas as a <laughs> word, as like whatever the Farkas may be. Uh, all right, so let's get away from Boone, who's just gotten the, the snot kicked out of him. Uh, and let's talk about Boone uh, in the, in, from the perspective of two other people who are, uh, Boone is going to make great impact on their lives. Uh, in the very near future, uh, this is a scene between Jack and Locke, and as Jack will uh, as Jack will say in the scene, that it's been a while since they've talked, uh, and it's a it's a great scene. Let's listen in. Any ships? Not yet, but I'm patient. Mind if I join you? It's been a while since you and I talked, John. Well, you're a busy man. So are you. Where's Boone? I haven't seen him today. Yeah? But you've been attached to the hip all week. Well, let me just check my hip. Nope, no Boone. How's the boar hunting going? Between you and me? Always. I'm afraid they're beginning to migrate outside our valley. 
They're smart animals, and smart animals adapt quickly when a new predator is introduced into their environment. You mean us? The most dangerous predator of all. I love this scene for so many reasons. <laughs> mostly the return of the predator. Yeah, mostly the return of John Locke taking on the predator, coating himself predator in mud. Predator the most dangerous predator of all. Come on, come here, kill me. Uh, what now? Uh, if Boone was played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, he would have fared a lot better. He would have just tore through those ropes by, like, moving a finger. Uh, <laughs> but, so you talk about mirrors to season six. I'll go one episode before season six. Josh... This is a near mirror between Jack and Locke, especially how the scene starts between the very first sound we played here on Down the Hatch, the scene from the incident part one between Jacob and the man in black. One guy approaches another one, sitting on the beach, looking out, asking if they're spying on ships. It, it's, mm. it's an insane mirror that I That's love great. thinking back on. Oh, looking into that lighthouse and seeing what it's reflecting back. I dig it, Mike Bloom. Very good. Definitely didn't make that connection myself. That's awesome. Um, Also, how awkward would it have been if Boone had literally been attached to Locke's hip? (laughs) Maybe that should have been Locke's big reveal. It's not that he can walk now. It's that he and Boone were previously conjoined twins, and now the island has separated them. Do they carry on separate lives, or do they invariably come back together? I will also say... Uh, as smooth as Locke may be in this episode, bad look on him, bad lock on him for be, to be telling multiple stories to different people. You know, as we say, we're both survivor people. We know the danger that can come in telling a bunch of people different stories because they're going to inevitably compare notes. When you tell Saeed, oh, I let Boone go hunt by himself, and you tell Jack, oh, I haven't seen Boone today, you are very purposely and unnecessarily drawing suspicion to yourself. Yeah, you're definitely muddying the waters a little bit. Um, but, you know, this is not going to be the only time that, like, Locke tells some tall tales. It's not going to be the only time that Locke, uh, like, exaggerates versions of events uh, as it involves Boone specifically. You know, Boone is actually, like, a very important Lost character. Yeah. Uh, Boone is a very important character in the mythos of this show insofar as, like, the treatment of this man Um both by by Locke, uh, you know, kind of taking advantage of of Boone's loyalty and dedication to the cause, and therefore putting him in such a dangerous situation that he is fatally wounded. Uh, and Jack's treatment of Boone, of having this poor kid who's just been doing his best, even if it's a little annoying, die on his operating table and die because of a misdiagnosis, basically from Locke. That the death of Boone is what's going to shatter any illusion of a truce or a peace or a, 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 under, a mutual understanding of each other between Jack and Locke. And that's going to catalyze so much of the action moving forward. Uh, so much of the rest of Lost is going to be about, uh, can you rebuild that bridge that was burned by the death of Boone? Uh, so I think that this is actually a really important scene because um, we're not going to see a lot from Jack and Locke anymore uh, where they're you know even close to being on the same page. Uh, we're pretty pretty close to the divorce. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna be able to 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 work together on the Ethan thing a little while from now. Like it's not fully lights out, but it's getting close to closing time for these two characters. And it's easy to forget that a lot of that does stem from the death of Boone to the point where Locke says between you and me, and Jack says always. And obviously in that moment, it's more about disclosing information. But yeah, it'll get to the point. 
that the this very is the guy who like showed him where the water was. Yeah, right. Like for for Jack in this moment, Locke is like he's an enigmatic figure, but he was a, he was a pretty important guy during a point where Jack really needed somebody. But it gets to the point where, as you're saying, it is going to quite literally always be between Locke and Jack uh, up until yeah. the very final episode, where yes, Locke is not Locke. But we're really setting up. I know we said that the first, you know, handful of episodes were setting up some more Jack versus Sawyer stuff, with I guess Locke sort of being Jack adjacent. But we're really starting to set up now the opposite sides of the chessboard, which will really come to a head, you know, obviously down the line here, especially at the beginning of season four when they uh, disagree about the freighter of it all. I mean, speaking about the note of uh, Boone's effect, I believe I read something that Boone makes the most post death appearances of any character maybe besides uh if you count you know christian shepherd but he appears in so many flashbacks so many visions so many uh flash sideways stuff that i mean the the effect of him is going to really be felt and we'll definitely get into that more when we get into the do no harm of it all but this is such an important scene and like you said we haven't really revisited these two working together since all the best daddies or even really since that conversation in white rabbit and having the two of them sit down here and sort of foreshadow with the schism that's going to develop, I think is a really cool scene that goes forgotten in this episode. It's just the second time you've said all the best daddies, which I really, really like as shorthand for all the best cowboys. <laughs> all the best daddies. <laughs> <Damn it. laughs> that's going to be my new Tabula Rasa, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will ever replace Tabula Rasa, but all the best daddies is awesome. It's absolutely awesome. All the best daddies. All right. Um, all the best daddies have cowboy issues. This is something that I don't know yet, but I'm sure you can speak to as a new father, Mike. Um, um, all right, well, let's check back in with the Quan's first son. She's with Kate. She tells Kate that Michael knows about the secret, that she can speak English. Kate promises she can keep a secret. We know that's true. Um, and she's like, why doesn't Jin know? And she says, it's complicated. I love him. Have you never lied to a man you've loved? And Kate doesn't say anything, but, like, you know, she's like, got it. Yep, got it. Totally Let get me it. tell you about totally the, and when I married Captain Hammer. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you about that time I was married to Mal Reynolds. Uh, all right, and then Jin is with Hurley, and Hurley is still on the beach, uh, just like with his foot up. He's like, you sure you don't speak English? There's a rumor you do. Your wife's hot. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, and then Jin gives him the sea urchin. And he's like, all right, if I eat this, you're going to give me a fish. And so Hurley is ready to do it. He has the great uh, little, uh, the rah-rah speech he gives himself over the lips, past the gums, yada, yada, oh, God. <laughs> and he swallows it, and he can't keep it down. Uh, poor guy, listen, he's got a weak stomach right now. I don't blame him. I don't uh, blame could him. You Looney's an acquired taste. Could you imagine, though, if then Hurley starts tripping now, and it's just that, <laughs> <laughs> like, sea urchin was the main ingredient, apparently, uh, in his paste? Yeah, that was what was in the paste. <laughs> oh, wait, it's gingin paste. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Trigger. Trigger me timbers. All right. So Jack is going to go on the beach. He's hanging out with Charlie. He's checking out Charlie. He's helping him with his medication. Uh, he's going to see how Charlie's doing. And Charlie's like, how am I doing with what? With week two of heroin withdrawal or the fact that Claire was abducted by that freak who tried to kill me? Uh, Jack says, it was uh, aspirin was for the heroin. But how was that other thing? <laughs> Yeah, this You're is an right? interesting check-in. You know, I talked about how much I loved Charlie's arc in uh, whatever the case may be, and it's an interesting follow-up. I'm glad that we do get Jack specifically checking back in on Charlie, because I feel like we were missing that, especially post All the Best Daddies. 
Uh, but I, Charlie, uh, <laughs> it's interesting to hear Charlie's perspectives on Locke, right? Because if we're talking about the cult of Locke, you could actually say that Charlie might have been the first acolyte in that Locke found his guitar. Locke was the one to get off right. heroin. So it gets to the point that we'll talk about, Charlie, really underlining the series, I think, uh, perspective towards Locke at this point, which was like, hey, we have full trust in him, even if he might be up to some shadier things than we realize. Yeah, for sure. And like, yeah, he says, like, if there's, you know, he's definitely the, the, the guy who's highly disturbed. He's a freak of nature, probably killed all of his mates at the post office when his mom forgot to pack him a cookie in his lunch tin. That was my first impression. Uh, but then he saved my life. And if there's one person on this island I'd put my absolute faith in to save us all, it's John Locke. Uh, and I think that, like, the history of Lost will bear out that you don't really want to put your absolute faith into anything. You do want some reason behind all of the things you're doing, but you also need to have some faith. And while absolute faith in John Locke isn't the wisest thing because uh, that man is not going to make it and that man is going to be easily fooled, I think there's still an argument that to a degree John Locke does save them all because his memory is what fuels so much of the action of Jack in the later stage of the show. Uh, and if not for that, if not for Jack trying to do his very best John Locke impression while the man in black is doing his own, um, you know, this this whole thing ends very, very differently. Um, so a cool scene, cool scene to have here. Um, meanwhile, in the caves, we get our one check-in with Michael. He's got, uh, the, he's got this box that he's found. We don't know what's inside it yet, mm. but they're setting up special. They're setting up next week's episode, Mike. Uh, and this is like what we were talking about last week with how Saeed had the Nadia picture a few weeks before we got into solitary. Right. Like, I feel like this is good. Like, this is, this is, it's, it's nice when Lost is able to, like, be a week ahead of the action or a couple weeks ahead of the action, ideally, but at least a week. Uh, it's, it's really nice. And so we know that this is going to be a bigger plot point in special. We'll talk about that in one week's time. Meanwhile, Hurley's going to saddle up next to him. He's like, I guess I just got to get used to diarrhea. Uh, let me eat some more papaya. Man's got to eat. Uh, but here comes Jin. He's got a fish, fully scaled and gutted. I guess he never said, like, Hurley had to keep the uni down. He just had to go for it. And so he was impressed. And Hurley is equally impressed that he is getting, like, a fully ready fish. Like, all you got to do is put it on a stick and put it over a fire, and you're ready to go. Yeah, exactly. And all Hurley had to do... I mean, I guess we never got a resolution as to, like, did Hurley pee on his own foot? Did he get... <laughs> jack to do it like is hurley going to undergo some sort of infection from this is Locke gonna have to rub paste on his foot uh we're not entirely sure but i guess hurley's none the worse for the wear from the foot perspective i guess he was more so emotionally gutted much like that fish and there's this really nice moment where you know Jin gives the fish to hurley and then goes to sun and they have you know a very at this uh, moment like anti uh, Quan thing from what we know them to be we're like they're very tender and sweet to each other we're not having Jin be very demanding or Sun you know stand up for himself to Jin's uh, bewilderment it seems like they're just very sweet to one another and I guess after the day that both of them had it, it makes a lot of sense uh, and Jack is going to reunite with Claire. Uh, not with Claire. I keep confusing. She's Kate gone, Josh. She's gone. I know. Where is she? Why doesn't anyone care? We'll see her next week. Uh, Jack comes to Kate. Uh, and he's uh, he's got a slimy little bluish black thing. He's guava seeds. Let's a garden without guava. I didn't realize that. Again, we know how good of a tracker Kate is, but I did not realize she like was able to recount 
uh, seeds off the top of her head. Like the yeah. uh, the other ones, I could understand because I think she was literally getting them out of the fruit. But I don't know how she could eye those and be like, "Oh yes, guava seeds. I know them specifically from their." Hue. All right, got it, got it, Mike. You ready? Here we go. Yep. Tabula Rasa, Ray Mullen. Uh, we call him the Peach Man, and then we wonder is he a jarred pear guy? Maybe it was just a fruit farm. Lots yeah. of fruits. Various fruits. She knows her, her passion fruit seeds. She knows her guava seeds. Spent spent a lot of time with Ray. This man with a sweet tooth for the fruits. Actually, I could really... I think that's perfect headcanon. That she, in the uh, couple weeks she spent with Ray, she had nothing else to do while she was laying low than just studying all the yeah. fruits, what they look like, what their seeds look like. And it really comes in handy because not only is she planting the fruits, she's picking the fruits. Like, she is a fruit-based woman. That's absolutely it. All right. Now we get back to the A plot, uh, even though we've spent like a lot of time away from it. And it's Boone and Shannon. They're in the woods. Shannon wants to know more about what's going on uh, with, with Locke. Uh, and then the monster comes back, and it's scary. Oh, my gosh. Oh, gee. Uh, and the monster comes and scoops up Shannon. And, oh, gosh, she's in trouble. I do really like cut, that scene, though, because it's, it's a shot that tracks along uh, Maggie Grace's legs just running, and then it just slowly has her lift up like she's Mary Martin as Peter Pan. But, I mean, at this point, we still don't know what the monster is or even what it looks like. And so it's really this idea of, you know, what it represents more so than what it actually is. And, again, this is why uh, I think more about it as a representation of a hallucination is because we don't see it from Boone's perspective. You know, we see the trees get thrown around. We see Shannon get thrown around. And it makes sense because Boone has seen it do that. And that's it. So if you're thinking about it from how would Boone manifest it, of course he doesn't know what it looks like, but he does know that right. it rips up treats. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, this is something that when I allow myself to think about it too much, I guess bothers me a little bit of like the people who clearly have eyes on the monster but never report what it looked like. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, is it a little more forgivable if this is all a hallucination so he's not actually seeing the real monster? But then what is he seeing? So maybe that makes me think like he's actually seeing the monster and this is like a real monster experience that he's having here. Ah, real monsters. Ah! <laughs> yeah. I love being smelly. Um, <laughs> was that Hurley or Crumb? It was Crumb. Uh, this is a good, that's a good segue into what comes next because uh, we have another flashback, final flashback of the episode where Shannon is going to come to Boone drunk like a skunk. Uh, He's got ice on his face because Brian punched him in the face. And Shannon shows up and says, Brian took the money. He's gone. Boone just looks at it and goes, oh, so the player got played. (laughs) How poetic, like my book, Watership Down, that I'm currently reading. Oh, let's not talk about that. uh, That's going to happen. I swear to God. Uh... But then the thing happens. I guess let's listen to the thing. I knew you'd bring the money. I knew you would. You were drunk. You want to know why? This doesn't really matter, does it? Because you're going to tell me anyway. Because you're in love with me. What? You brought the money because you're in love with me. You show up here plastered. You've always been in love with me. You've always been a self-centered little bitch, but now you're delusional. I've always known it.
gone. What? When we get back to L.A., you should just tell your mom that you rescued me again, just like you always do, and then we'll just go back. To what? To what it was. Like it's all up to you. Good trust. Josh, this scene to me is captivating. <laughs> Look, I, I will be completely candid. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking about how uh, depraved my mind is. Uh, but And we'll certainly get into, like, I think how we each react to this storyline in the moment. But, I mean, I played the entire scene in there because I think it is so interestingly done. Particularly the musical scoring of it, where it starts out with, like, this tender yet melancholy piano melody and then it just builds obviously as things get more hot and heavy to this big crescendo and what i love is when it drops into silence that it it jumps to what seems like this post-coitus moment and if you're taking this from boone's perspective as we were the entire flashback like yes this was his this big romantic moment that he finally wanted to happen and then it's all over and the music's gone and reality sets in and she even turns a light on to bring him out of that darkness and make him realize, yeah, this fantasy that you had, it's over. I know about it, and I teased you with it, and I screwed with you quite literally, and now it's done. We need to get back on with our lives. And we'll get into, I think, you know, what this says about Boone's character, but I don't know. I'll be honest, I love it. It's, it's so dark, it's so perverted, it's lost. It's, I, it's so interesting. To me, how he looks at this interaction and how that summarily informs the way we look as Boone as a character and especially how he looks at Shannon as well. Knowing this is the literal thing that happened seemingly like maybe the night before they ended up getting on that plane. Right. Well, so a few things. Uh, One, as the not dating police chief was uh, hard stressing, no blood relation different parents totally not biologically related absolutely not bizarre if they boink so they've boinked and it's fine and everything's all right but i think everything else that you're saying holds water as well except i would add i think that it's it's very compelling from shannon's perspective too uh where this is somebody who uh, she's she's had a lot of pain in her life uh and that's yet to be illuminated that's gonna the light's gonna be turned on on that um you know uh a, a little bit less than a full season from now um where we're gonna find out uh all about everything that happened in abandoned but we even get like little drips and drabs of it here when we find out that uh boone's mom froze shannon out of all of the money and so she has to resort in her mind she has to resort to some of these types of tactics uh in order to uh in order to to live in order to 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 survive uh and that speaks to what boone says early in the episode as you mentioned like she's smarter than she seems she's very clever she's resourceful um you think about like everything that shannon's gone through and i don't know that she feels quite the same way for boone the way that boone feels for her but in the moment that she's here like she must just like be so tired she's drunk uh you know being uh intoxicated there is a truth serum quality to it i've heard it said uh and so you know for her to come to him like this she must be in a pretty lost way herself and like knowing that this is somebody who will be up for providing her like actual authentic comfort 
uh, you can imagine in her drunk mind that that's an appealing concept. And by the time she turns the lights on, there's like a little bit of like, I don't know if you call it quite buyer's remorse so much as like the cold light of day and being like, this is not tenable. This is not sustainable. This is not something that's going to go on past this. Um, and it wasn't, it was empty for her too, probably. Uh, and these are two people who are still just like so sad at the end of it. Uh, so, so there's all of that that's wrapped up in it. And then it's just, it's played very eerily. Like it is like sonically and aesthetically played like, yay, something's wrong. Like this is weird. We are breaking something. Something's being violated here uh, in terms of like the audience's understanding of these characters the relationship between these two people uh shannon saying we'll just go back to what it was and boone being like like it's all up to you you know we are crossing the rubicon with these two characters uh so it's all of that fully fully tracks one more thing that i'll say and at the risk of uh, resurrecting count jacula uh <laughs> that there's a there's a great story that maggie grace has told yes um uh, she said this at Paley Fest for a Lost reunion a few years ago. I was actually in the audience for this, uh, where she talked about how in advance of the makeout scene with Boone and like being like, oh, this is like a really weird moment. Oh, my God. And I guess like Maggie Grace like puffed on a, a, a huge cigar and ate a mouthful of like really garlicky food before she did the makeout scene with Ian Summerhalder. So if this scene wasn't already icky enough on its own, now try and get that mouthfeel in your mind <laughs> Uh, and put that onto that scene, map that onto the scene, and I think it just gets all the weirder. Yeah, I believe uh, she also talks about it in the uh, Lost on Location thing on this episode as well, where she says she chewed up, not only did she chew up a bunch of garlic and onion, Josh, but apparently she, like, spit it into Ian Summeralder's mouth during (laughs) one take. So she was, like, (laughs) retaining some of it, uh, which I guess, again, is is, uh, bringing an odd taste onto the scene. Maggie Grace has really interesting perspective on this scene as well, where I can understand the vulnerabilities like you say, where maybe Shannon is seeking some sort of comfort. But Maggie Gray says, using sex to blackmail one one's brother emotionally is low. And so it does seem like, at least from Grace's perspective, that what Shannon is doing here is a bit of a manipulation. That she is she knows exactly what Boone wants, and she's providing that so she can get what she wants, which is manipulative, but so interesting. What I really enjoy about this is... Up until this point, through 12 episodes of Lost, all we saw of Boone and Shannon were that they were spoiled rich kids, to be quite honest. It was completely two-dimensional. And yes, this is a hell of a third dimension to add on to these characters, but it views them in a completely new way, in my opinion. I guess the big thing here is, especially knowing what the path is for Boone, and like you said, I don't know if they knew what the path was for Boone at this moment. You know, do we feel like A lot of times on this podcast, we grow more appreciation for things, knowing what eventually happens to them on the show. Could the opposite be true here? I know some people have said that, like, oh, there's a this is a Boone and Shannon episode. Well, they end up dying in seasons one and two, so it doesn't really matter anyway. Is it the fact that we know what happens to them? And granted, you talked about the the consequences of their deaths, but the fact that they die so early on in the history of Lost, does that, from a, a popular opinion perspective, lead to a lower regard for this episode? Probably. I I think um, the ways that you, if you're not going through it week by week and moment by moment, if the episode isn't like fairly fresh, then you just like kind of like grab onto the things that are obviously noteworthy about this episode uh, or any episode. And so you can just like shorthand this one as the one where Boone and Shannon have sex. And that's weird. Uh, and it is weird. And it's not the it's not my 
favorite plot development on all of Lost. I do think it's it's a fascinating one and a very competently um, you know constructed scene that is very evocative and makes you feel a lot of things. Not the least of which is icky. Like if you were to get urine splashed on your foot to stave off uh, some poisoning. Um, but I think it's very easy to just like be like. Boone and Shannon were misfires. This is a Boone episode, and it's the Boone episode where he and Shannon have sex. That's a that's not a great episode of Lost. But then I think that you miss a lot of um, not just the nuance within that storyline and that scene and how that scene itself is is uh, is done. Uh, but I think you're missing a lot of the other on island stuff that is uh, that is rather compelling. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. There's the ratings are coming up. Uh, I think uh, if, if the summary has not made it clear, I think Mike Bloom and I like this one. Yeah, well, well, well let's um, we'll keep it in the dark for now. Try not to for now, for turn now. on the light. Turn the light on yet? Yeah. yeah. All right. So on the on the island, Boone is going to find Shannon's B O D Y, uh, pretty good and mutilated on the rocks, and he cries with her in his arms. And we cut to commercial. Uh, and I know that there are a lot of people out there who were really faked out by this. And I don't remember what my thought was on this. I think I thought, like, I don't think they're just going to kill Shannon like that, but maybe. Um, well, I mean, they- remember, again, at this moment, we had still we had been teased in promotional material with a major yeah. character is going to die. So, I mean, and then on top of the big revelation of, oh, you know, Boone and Shannon had a one-night stand, I thought it could have been in the realm of possibility of they make this big revelation and fearing what would happen if they kept that type of controversial character on our screen kills off at least one of them in the moment. Yeah, so it's possible. Uh, I just don't have a vivid memory of how I reacted to this in the moment because so quickly we come back for the final act of the episode. Boone comes back to the caves. He charges at Locke. He's got a knife. It killed her! That thing killed my sister! And Locke is, like, really into this. He's like, ooh, juicy. (laughs) This is like a sweet passion fruit tea. Uh, Why is there no blood on you if she died in your arms? Uh, And it leads to a really intense revelation for Boone, who's going to see that Shannon is very much still alive and hanging out with Saeed here in the caves. In fact, let's close out the summary by listening to the final scene of the episode. What the hell? Hell just happened to me. I don't know. I don't know. You tell me. But your sister, Shannon? I mean, I could spend a day. <laughs> Sorry for spoilers. Who's dead? Is that what it made you see? What made me see? I gave you an experience that I believed was vital to your survival on this island. It wasn't real? It was only as real as you made it. I saw her. I saw her die. How did you feel when she died? I felt... I felt...
He, and he followed yes. him, he does, to his death. Uh, yes. I, I know that, you know, we talked about Ian Summerhalder, uh definitely playing the emotional scale maybe to his character's detriment in this episode, but I will say he really did it for me in this final scene. There's just something about how awestruck and tearful he was uh, when he talks about, you know, how he was surprisingly relieved when Shannon died. That I don't know, I think really resonated with me. So I will give him kudos that... Boone does does not seem like the easiest character to play, especially now that we uh, know what he might be into. But considering the swirl of emotions that's going on with this character in the final scene, I feel like Summerhalder does a good job with it. Yeah, I think so too, for sure. I mean, I, I've said before, like I think that Boone is a better character than remembered. I think Ian Summerhalder does an admirable job with the role. Is he like a blockbuster lights out character on Lost? No, definitely not. Um, but I think he's he he does a good he does good work here playing this guy who again just feels like he's the master of his destiny, but is very much not. And that is the fate for so many of these people. Um, but I think it's it's articulated at its earliest and most deadly point uh, up to this point anyway by Boone. Uh, and I think Summerhalder is tasked with, uh, with with a lot of complicated stuff that he does a pretty good job here. But I, again, I just love John Locke so, so much. I love Terry O'Quinn, Mystic Man. Uh, I love him. Guy, you called him a cult leader. A hundred percent. Like, it's a little, it's it's a very dark ending in this episode. Yeah. Where he says, like, yeah, nice. Yeah, you felt relieved that she is gone. Awesome. Time to let go and be my guy. Uh, and, like, yeah, that's twisted and kind of weird, but very effective. Uh, like you gotta give props to John Locke for pulling off a con, uh, and getting Boone on his side, or even if he wasn't responsible for it. Like I think either reading of the episode, whether this was like the monster serving Boone up to John Locke or John Locke serving Boone up to himself, like putting Boone on a journey and then scooping him up when he comes back from the journey. Either way, Locke walks away with a pawn, uh, and that's good for Locke at least in the short term. Um, so, so points to lock from, from, from my camp. Um, anything else about the ending before we start getting into the feedback, which I'm sure will guide a lot of this conversation forward. I mean, again, I'm making the cult leader comparison. I mean, I feel like it's cult 101 for the leader to say, Hey, put aside all your previous relationships. They're going to be the ones that weigh you down. So you can't fully embrace this new faith. And that's literally what Boone does. I do wonder what portion of it comes from Locke's own personal history. As he tells Saeed, he didn't have many friends. Uh, you know, he had one lover, uh, one on and over the phone and one in person that ended up not going well. So I wonder how much of his own philosophy and just unwavering obsession with the hatch comes from the fact that he didn't have other frivolities with personal relationships in his life to, you know, be able to make that balance happen. He is someone who knows to do things only one way, Josh, and that's full tilt. And I think and I think that shows in this episode with how far he's willing to push Boone to get him to throw Shannon by the wayside. And if we're talking about the sliding doors like we did in All the Best Daddies, uh, I do wonder, <laughs> had this situation not happened, if Boone would have still ended up in that beachcraft. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting to think about. Yeah, 100%. All right, well, let's start moving on to the 15, 16 others, our feedback section. But before we do, Mike Bloom, uh, listen, I think going into that final act of this episode, you could have wondered, is Shannon really dead? You would have had one person being like, she's totally dead. And you're like, no way, she's not dead. And you're like, oh, you want to bet on it? You want to make a bet? Well, that would have been a great opportunity to use our friends over at betdsi.com as your 
betting partner, Mike. I mean, listen, you can bet on anything using BetDSI, even commercial breaks in your favorite climactic TV shows. BetDSI, it's a live betting platform where you can watch all the events and even bet on the games until the final whistle. New members get a 100% bonus match using promo code RECAP101. That's double your money to start winning today. BetDSI has been paying winners for 20 years, Mike. It's top rated on betting review sites. It is a very user-friendly interface and mobile site. BetDSI, it comes with the fastest payouts in the industry. You simply play, win, and get paid. BetDSI offers betting options for everything. You bet on the NFL, NBA, NHL, boxing, all other major sports, even politics, reality, TV, esports, virtually everything. You could use live betting at BetDSI to bet on games from start to finish. Every play, every minute, until the end. New members get 100% bonus match using promo code RECAP101 to double your money to start winning today. So if that sounds interesting to you, once again, go to BetDSI.com, use promo code RECAP101, and get this limited-time 100% bonus offer to make some extra cash. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. Let's get in to the 15, 16 others, Mike Bloom. And as always, uh, we will start... By looking back at the previous episode, whatever the case may be, and we've got a listener who would like to make a case for Kate's actions in whatever the case may be. Um, This is coming our way from Sarah West. Sarah West writes in and says, in your last episode, you mentioned that flashback Kate just had it together so much more than episode Kate, but I think you're at least partially wrong. At least I think I have a better way of rationalizing it that makes the episode in Kate's character much better. In her flashbacks, Kate is often manipulating men to get what she wants. The flashback for this episode is particularly clear about that. The flashbacks very often teach us how we're supposed to be reading into characters' motivations. So I think we're seeing her actions in the flashback mirroring what's happening in the episode. It's not that Kate is losing her touch or something. It's that Kate has a really good idea of what motivates Sawyer and Jack, and she's using it against them to get what she wants. It's just as she did with setting up the whole bank robbery in the first place. If she tells Sawyer what's actually in the case, he either won, doesn't believe her, and goes about what he did anyway, or two, doesn't care care about a toy airplane and then doesn't try to open the case. Kate wanted him to try to open the case because at that time she felt like maybe he could get it open and she wouldn't have to deal with the marshal's body. If Sawyer gets the case open, he'd think all the fuss was about the guns and he'd probably discard the airplane somewhere that she could grab it. He'd never think anything about it. But Sawyer can't get it open. So she decides that Jack is her best bet both for getting the case open and for getting it back from Sawyer. If she tells Jack what's actually in the case, he either, one, doesn't believe her and goes about what he did anyway, or two, doesn't care about a toy airplane, (laughs) fat chance, and doesn't help her get the key. We know he's going to care about the toy airplane, Mike. Oh, of course. Uh, (laughs) Continuing from Sarah, think about it. It's a big deal during the episode that people are trying to move camp on the beach. You know Jack would tell Kate that helping people move or taking uh, taking them water while they're expending so much energy would take priority over getting a toy out of a locked case. At this point, she's given up on Sawyer getting it open, so she knows she's got to get that key and get the case back. It's going to take a hell of a lot of work to do it alone. So she's really just using the same tactics we see her use in her flashbacks, playing on these men's natures to get them to do something to benefit her. I'd love to hear what you guys think. What do you think about all that, Mike? 
First, I want to say that I do really appreciate Sarah, you know, uh, putting forward some arguments uh, to try to explain this character's behavior. Because, I mean, that's what we were trying to do last episode as well. We really want the episode to make sense, and I think that involves certainly stringing together some things. And I completely agree with her that the flashbacks, especially early on, were used to ascribe character motivations uh, to certain people, or at least the way that they behave. Do have some quibbles with her arguments. I'm sorry, Sarah. I really appreciate what you did. Uh, but from the Sawyer perspective, I can understand that you know she wanted. Uh, you know she she was fine with Sawyer opening the case. If that's the case, why did she then steal it while he was up in the tree instead of just waiting for him to open it? You know, and and uh, I know that there with this whole thing about like. She, you know, Kate felt that Jack would just shrug her off if she says that it would be after a toy airplane. She could say that the case had guns in it and just not be so squirrely about, like, the toy plane and what it means. And it still would have the same effect. Again, I appreciate uh, the chance to explain some of Kate's motivations here, but I still feel like there are some holes in there, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. Um but this is what this podcast is all about, is retconning things. So I appreciate the attempt for sure. And if that works for people, that's awesome. If that works for Sarah West, that's fantastic. Look, Kate still got an MVP point. Uh, I think they canceled each other out in the end. Yes. I don't remember if she actually got a full MVP. No, I'm pretty sure, was... I'm pretty sure she, got, uh, z- she got the balance of zero, which, again, cons- controversial, considering the way that some things may have happened that last episode, she got off easy. Yeah, lucky, lucky outcome. Uh, <laughs> Suzanne Linford has a, a great theory about why Kate wanted the plane so bad. She says, what if Lost is actually a sequel to Ant-Man and the Wasp? And Kate Austin is Hope Van Dyne. She wants to get inside the Halliburton case because the toy plane is a real plane, shrunk with pim particles. Ooh, okay, so here's a theory. The island is in the quantum realm, and that's why nobody mm. can get to it. Ah, the quantum realm. I exactly, see. and it's going to take uh, a rat uh, named Eloise stepping on a button for the island to suddenly appear in the middle of the Pacific. I like it. I like it. All right, uh, let's move on to this episode. Some production notes from the great Ben behind the curtain, Ben Martell, who is uh, breaking my heart with this first one, talking about how that Michelangelo story probably isn't true. No! How are we supposed to believe what- in our great, great god, John Locke? Listen, he's a fallible deity. Uh, Ben Martell writes and says, There's some facts we could be sure aren't quite right. Michelangelo's father was initially angry at Michelangelo's desire to do art, but there's no evidence that he beat him, and it seems he was eventually supportive. Michelangelo started carving the statue within a month of his commission. The block of marble was carved outside. It's hard to imagine it would have been able to make it into the studio. Perhaps most concerning is the absence of the story from key reputable sources regarding Michelangelo and the statue of David. Locke's story has appeared unsighted in professional writings and in blogs as fact, but every single instance Ben could find, uh, it's been, they've been published after Lost and bears an uncanny resemblance to the exact version of the story as told by John Locke. The longer after the Lost, the, uh, the longer after Lost the reference is made, the less likely it seems to be that Lost is noted. It appears that Lost may have created an apocryphal story that is now frequently reported as truth. Uh, but Ben Martell also notes that he's found no absolute proof that the story is definitively untrue. So it's over to us to decide the lost canon for what's going on here. Is John Locke the coach Wade of Lost, given that he also falsely claimed Norman Croucher made it up to Mount Everest? Ooh. Or are Locke's stories all absolutely true within the world of Lost? 
I am here for the man David effect where Lost has now created a narrative <laughs> that is now completely true, even though it's uh, not. Oh, man. The man of, uh, the man of faith, Della. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I love this because, I mean, Ben points out that the Norman Croucher thing we realized in Walkabout wasn't necessarily true. So I just love this idea of Locke being that person who definitely comes off like everything he says, you know, he's speaking from a, a complete sense of accuracy. But really, he's like that uh, Anthony Crispino character that Bobby Moynihan used to do on SNL, where he's just completely muddling the facts. But they're none the wiser because this is a uh, sort of like pre-internet slash beginning of the internet age. Yeah, um, I think, look, we know that John Locke is going to get things wrong. I have no problem with him being wrong about the story. The details don't matter nearly as much as the point right. and the telling. Uh, and the point and the telling are fantastic, so I'm fine. I'm fine with them. Being <laughs> Could wrong. you imagine if Boone got off the island somehow and he like goes to an encyclopedia? He's like, "Wait a minute, that isn't true." Yeah, yeah. John Krause reports in uh, and says he's seen the statue of David in person, and it's unimaginably large. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that if that adds any any weight well, one way or the that's other. That's what four months of thinking will get you. Yeah, I guess. Uh, here's from Ben Martell, other number four, a true story about the carving of David. Uh, ben writes, the statue of David was created out of a block of marble that nobody wanted. The block of marble was considered ruined after an earlier sculptor had started carving the legs and had made a hole, presumably between the legs, that many considered to have made the block unsalvageable. It lay probably virtually untouched from 1466 until 1501 when Michelangelo started his work. He was willing to see the possibility in a block of marble that everyone else had written off, not too dissimilar to the way that Locke takes to Boone. Hmm, And not too dissimilar to the way Locke wants the world to look at him, right? I feel like he feels particularly discarded by everyone around him, but he's a piece of marble that can be very easily carved into a, you know, what he feels is, is something beautiful and something that can be looked at. He just has to go to Australia and go on that walkabout so people can realize it. Yeah, don't dismiss his legs, right? Like, yeah. Don't, don't, or, don't or the hole is... between them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, poor Hurley. All right. Other number five from Ben Martell. Here's a series Bible story of the week. This is from the series Bible. This is a storyline that never quite made it on to Lost. Uh, ben writes in and says, when our survivor, this is from the series Bible, when our survivors come across a grove of trees which bear a ripe yet unidentifiable fruit, the only thing that stops them from immediately picking it and bringing it back to the others is a mysterious sign posted at the grove's entrance. Unfortunately, the words written on it are in a script and language they have never seen before. Oh, man. Uh, this fruit. God, imagine. Poor Hurley's insides. As if they needed any help yeah. getting wrecked. And I wonder if this would have been an introduction of the uh, hieroglyphics that we'll see in the hatch. Maybe this would have unintentionally connected back to the temple of it all that for some reason the hostiles or the ancients had said no 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 don't go near this fruit yeah uh it, would have, it could have been interesting i think like the, a sign at a grove in a script in a language they'd never seen before that could have been fun. i think it would have been a good uh, like c or d plot i do not know if i want this hankering down one episode of lost that it's main to do all i'm saying is that the grove is one of the great walking dead episodes of all time who knows how it could have done well, on Lost. Sun has a grove going on. Kate alluded to it. I guess. I guess that's true. She's got her own grove. All right. Uh, how Lost got its grove back. <laughs> um, other, other number six. Got its six. grover dill back. 
Uh, other number six, Ben Martell notes about the electromagnetism. Uh, this episode is the first episode of Lost to be written short. That is, there was not enough material to fill a full episode. Saeed's scenes with Locke and Jack relating to the compass and the island's magnetic bearings were written and added very late in the process. As noted last week, by this point, Damon had settled on an electromagnetic anomaly being part of the explanation for the hatch. So this was a deliberate clue. Awesome. Yeah, that's I mean, I love that they built on that, like a nice current, this episode. And I love that we're getting more and more allusions to it as well. And Saida talks about it in the shoe scene of just like another mysterious force on the island. But I don't think he realizes how accurate he is and how that's going to pertain to his wonky compass. All right, let's get into specific feedback from Hearts and Minds. This is coming our way by Megan Schultz, and we've hyped it up in the past. Here it is. It's time. It's the Shannon Rutherford Stan dissertation. Megan Schultz, big fan of Shannon, weeks ago, weeks ago, wrote us this dissertation about Shannon, and we've been saving it for the Boone and Shannon episode to read it. This is the argument in favor of Shannon. It's long, so I'm going to take a quick sip of coffee to lubricate my mouth. Oh, Josh, so that don't I would have be able too to much. You're going to end up in a real hurly situation. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, post-production does wonders on that. Um, all right, here's from Megan Schultz. There's, uh, it's, it's several different points as to why uh, these are the reasons to stand. Six points in total. Point number one. Aside from Walt, Shannon is arguably the youngest person on the island at the start, probably 21 or 22 years old. She's also arguably even younger emotionally and mentally based on the fact that she had a very privileged and sheltered upbringing. Crash landing on an island without any survival skills or even life skills that most of the other castaways at least possess in some way or another was more challenging for her than most. Yet she seeks to prove herself from the pilot episode on, volunteering to go on the trek and translating Russo's transmission. Without Shannon, we wouldn't have any idea idea about what Rousseau said or that amazing ending to the pilot part two. Point number two in favor of Shannon. She is strong. Her father died in a tragic accident when she was a young adult, just learning about what she wanted to do with her life. Her stepmother was crappy and her stepbrother was a pushover who also happened to be in love with her. Her stepmother also cut her off financially without warning and without any, uh, in brackets, Maggie Grace period, when she was arguably at her most vulnerable right after her father died. Points for the wordplay on that one, Megan, of course. Uh, Point number three, despite her bitchy and spoiled exterior, she is extremely self-conscious and vulnerable. She seeks to prove herself at every opportunity because no one thinks she can do anything. Sides the person who sees her value, translating the transmission, Russo's maps, etc., which is why I think she is drawn to him. Point number four, after Boone's death and once she's passed her initial grief, right before the raft takes off, Shannon is the one that Walt decides to leave Vincent with. Clearly, Walt saw something in Shannon that made him trust her enough to take care of Vincent and knew that Vincent could take care of her as well. We even see her wading into the ocean to retrieve Vincent as he tries to swim after the raft that that has Walt on it. Point number five. Right before her death in season two, Shannon finally realizes that she has someone who cares for her and will never leave her, something she's never had in her entire life. Her father left her, her stepmother never kept her stepmother never cared about her, Boone left her, the various men she tried to fill whatever void she had in her life left her. And now in the moments before she's shot, she realizes that she has someone who truly loves her and someone who recognizes her worth in Said. Point number six. So, in conclusion. 
Shannon begins the series as a spoiled, self-conscious, bitchy, and vain young woman who learns who she is by the time of her death in season two, a strong, caring woman capable of much more than she gives herself credit for and capable of being someone that people can depend on and care for. These are my Shannon Rutherford reasons to stand. Don't at me. End rant from Megan Schultz. I mean, personally, there's not a lot for me to disagree with in there. And I think... For me, around this time, around the involvement with Saeed slash finding out more about her character is when I personally really started to like Shannon, or at least not dislike her. I think her issue is, as Megan alludes to, I think uh, the pilot stuff is interesting. But outside of that, I think she is really shown to be a very vapid, two-dimensional character. And so I am happy that this actually comes around this point in time, because... I think her reaction, especially to Boone's death, is a really interesting character transition up until she ends up gunned down in the jungle thanks to Anna Lucia. And so I'm very happy to have this dissertation on hand to refer back to. And I do agree with it. And I'm happy that it comes at, in my opinion, a turning point when it comes to opinions, at least personally for Shannon. Uh, all right. Other number eight. This is uh, about Shannon and Boone as a pair coming from John Krause. Uh, John writes in and says, this is a weird take, but I think Boone and Shannon are actually better characters watching in 2019 than they were in 2004. They're really great examples of rich, privileged white Americans who have never had to worry for anything or even really do anything. Like it or not, this is a chunk of the American demographic, and it makes sense that there would be people like this on the plane. With that framing, they become very interesting characters because they're not bad people. Indeed, they actually want to help and contribute, but their own privilege holds them back significantly. Hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I would say that they maybe play better now— Maybe not even for that reason, but I think it's because, you know, we've experienced the realm of antiheroes in popular culture for the past several years, you know, where you have characters who are protagonists, but they do very questionable things sometimes. Yeah, sure. Like Walter White, Tony Soprano, Count Jackula. Exactly. Count Jackula, the ultimate antihero. Uh, but I would say that, you know, even though we are a bit uh, in the Sopranos at this moment, I, I feel like, you know, it's still weird to have these two characters where, yes, they are not biologically related. This is very much a Sharon Josh situation from Clueless, where they're step siblings and they get together in the end. It's still a weird thing. I was very much struck when I saw this first. My mouth was agape watching this actually happen and it got me so in- garlic just pouring exactly out of it. i mean that that was my personal <laughs> snack chat for every episode of lost uh-huh. just a big mouthful <laughs> of garlic no wonder i didn't get a date for quite some time uh but i think that in this day and age where i think we're used to watching very problematic people on tv maybe it plays a little less incendiary i don't know how do you feel about that um well, you had mentioned it to me like we were texting a couple days ago before we started recording this, uh, and you brought up the the Paul Rudd and Alicia Silverstone clueless connection, uh, and the oh my god, I love Josh! I'm totally butt crazy in love with Josh, uh, and that revelation at the end of that movie. And I hadn't thought of it that way, and it it caused me to fire back the recent meme of uh, 
of Paul Rudd. Look at us. Look at us. Hey, look at us. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's uh, kind of how I felt uh, in response to that. Look, I mean, listen, you're talking to somebody who's on the other side of the Game of Thrones. Oh, right. Uh, Boone, and, Boone and Shannon doesn't really weird me out that much anymore. Uh, and if like Game of Thrones didn't weird you out, like House of the Dragon is certainly going to try. Because uh, <laughs> if we're getting to Targaryens, we're getting into really severe incest territory. Um, but I still think that even revisiting the episode, I just think that there is sort of this, uh, there is this dark undercurrent or undercurrent if you want to take the fruit <laughs> from the grove. Uh, that's going to cause Hurley's stomach to, to go into knots. Uh, I, I think it's still, it's still there. I think it is still, it's interesting. It's, it's a, it's a very different version of what so many of these people go through where they reach this moral crossroads and they go down one path in the fork, uh, and they can't come back. You can never come back from what it is you just did. Uh, and like oftentimes there's like a life or death quality to that choice here on, on lost where we're like Sawyer, like, he decides to become Sawyer. He decides to become a con man. Mm. He decides to go after people and trick them out of their money in pursuance of this man who ruined his family, but he is now going to ruin families on his way to doing that. Or someone like Jack, where it's not that he was wrong to to tell uh, the board what his dad did, that his father was drunk and operating uh, under the influence. Um, but the consequence of that is that his father's going to go to Australia and drink himself to death. It's not like it's his fault, but that's a consequence of the choice that he makes. That stems from the decision he makes. Um, those are life and death stakes. Here, does this does this moment cause Boone or Shannon directly to die? Does it kill anybody? No. Do they die a little bit of embarrassment? Maybe. Uh, like there's a, there's an element of that, but there is still like some sort of like existential death, especially as it reads from Boone's perspective right. in this episode. Because you know you think of you think of Hearts and Minds as a Boone and Shannon episode, but it's a Boone episode. Uh, it's Boone's flashback. It's Boone's perspective that we're getting all of this through, uh, and you do sense that existential death, that idea of something that I think is more relatable. Uh, to more people maybe, or at least maybe more relatable to me anyway. Uh, this idea of like, you've done something that isn't life or death bad, but it feels that bad. Like it feels that heavy. Uh, and like, as somebody who is like a highly anxious person, like somebody who has anxiety disorder, like every bad thing that I do feels like the end of the world. Uh, and so like this kind of has that connotation to it. But it is like a severe status quo shift in their relationship. There is no coming back from what's just happened here. They'll never forget the fact that this happened between them. Uh, granted, they won't be alive for too much longer, so they're not going to have to suffer the embarrassment and the pain that they're well, feeling here for too, too much Maybe longer, in that but. church. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think Saeed is going to, when he finds out what he's just uh, signed on for, for the eternal afterlife, he's going to have a lot of questions. Maybe that's why we got to feel a little bit bad for him. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's it's still fairly powerful. Yeah. And, uh, I, would, and yeah, I would say yeah. going back to the Game of Thrones thing, I mean, something that I really picked up, especially from like the arc of Jamie Lannister, is oddly enough, this idea of like, sometimes you can't pick who you love but you love them ferociously nonetheless. And it's weird that, like, you're talking about a shift in status quo over the course of eight seasons. I would not say that people were necessarily on board with the twin-cess thing, but I think the sort of the the the, uh, the ookiness of it broke down to the point where you sort of looked at it as a love story instead of outright remembering, oh, yeah, they are related. And I wonder if it's sort of like, I wouldn't say it's maybe gained sympathy for Boone, but it at least makes me gain perspective in him where at the time you're like oh gross he's kissing his stepsister when you realize that like 
it's something that maybe he couldn't necessarily help, but it's something that he's obviously, like, made him probably so remorseful and probably so torn up inside as to all the stuff that he has to get involved in. Because not only is he Shannon's half-brother, but at this point, he's, like, Shannon's only family member that's really communicating with her. It really gave me more insight to Boone's character than I initially thought. All right, well, so let's let's follow this through into other number nine from 80 from British Columbia, who writes it and says, I've been rewatching the episodes with my roommate who's watching Lost for the first time and was struck by how quickly he predicted that Boone and Shannon's relationship would turn out to be more than familial. He guessed it right after it was revealed that they were step-siblings. My question is, is there a 2019 pop culture lens through which the Boone and Shannon relationship reveal is less of a surprise? Or was it relatively easy to predict, predict in 2005 as well? I didn't watch the episodes as they aired back then, so I'm curious to hear how surprised you guys were, if at all. Uh, I do think that the not dating police chief, uh, once he spells that out, I I do think that I I at that point was like, heh, so they're gonna do it? I I mean I had no idea, and maybe this is because again, Lost was my first big. A network drama show that I invested in. And it's not like all network dramas were based on, you know, uh, people from the same family tree kissing each other. But I did not see this coming whatsoever. This absolutely blew my mind in a pretty grody way. And I'm pretty sure that was the reaction at the time as well. Because this is not a storyline that's, you know, was very much covered on TV. Say what you want to about, you know, your your uh, drug addicts or your alcoholics. Those were covered a lot in your dramas. But I don't think many specifically talked about, hey, here are some step-siblings where one is infatuated with the other one and they decide to have a one-night stand together. So just, I guess, not only the revelation, but the how far they went with it really surprised me at the time. All right, let's get into other number 10. Uh, people have issues with John Locke. <laughs> Uh, first, this is from Jenny Liu, who said, This episode's always confounded me a bit. I mean, so Boone's basically on some insanely lucid acid trip, and it allows him to, quote-unquote, let go in the end. But what? How is Locke aware of this hallucinogenic paste? Why would he give it to Boone? Has he already done it himself? How did he know he would get the desired outcome? Clearly, the island does speak to him in some way, but this just always seemed kind of sloppy to me. Uh, like an extra sloppy. It's just a weird thing. Locke, you're scaring us. Uh, Johnny Cheek also notes, what happens if John's faith in the island was too much and Boone never gets free of the ropes? Well, I guess that depends on your interpretation. Uh, so if it is like the monster, right? Like if the monster is actually uh, coming for Boone, then like the monster is going to be like, oh man, ah, well, I really thought that I was going to be enough to scare you out of the ropes. Yeah. Uh, ugh, it didn't work. Or probably. it could say, uh, you have more guff than I thought. Let me seep into you. So now I'll possess you. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. Uh, more about Locke. Other number 11 uh, from John Kraus. Locke shows some terrible manipulative judgment here. He's incapable of leading people to the correct decisions. He can't get Boone in the correct headspace without assaulting him, drugging him, and coercing him into abandoning his connection to Shannon. Locke is literally willing to destroy people's lives in service of the hatch. This, at least, is an extremely consistent characterization that I feel is carried through the entire show beautifully. Locke is still my favorite character, but this rewatch is showing him to me in a completely different light. Uh, co-signed on all of that, John Krause. These are not reasons to dislike John Locke as a character, as far as I'm concerned. These are reasons to love John Locke as a character. He's flawed like the game. Yeah. Um, Lindy, Lindy Steiner also notes... 
I don't like Locke in this episode because what he did to Boone is basically torture, right? I think Locke's desire to help Boone parallels the way Locke helped Charlie with his addiction, but all Boone did was want to tell Shannon about the hatch. It seems like Locke thinks that everything he does is for the best and that it's the right thing to do, but that's so dark here, especially since Boone's eventually going to die because of his involvement with Locke. Locke seems to think that his interests are more important than anyone else's and that everything he does is right. He just hits people over the head when they do something he doesn't (laughs) like. It's almost amusing. But so far on this rewatch, I'm not a fan. I'm looking forward to seeing how that changes throughout the series because I remember liking Locke the first time around lindy are you a fan of john Locke? (laughs) exactly uh lots of emojis john Locke is producing i mean i think we both bring up good points that i mean i wouldn't say it's a parallel i would say this is a huge ramping up this is the second beat of the charlie storyline which is so extreme it's been talked about how many things could have possibly gone wrong here yet luckily everything does go right in that not only does boona safely escape but is able to fall under Locke's tutelage, but this is really starting to show just the lengths he will go to, almost cartoonishly so, uh, to get what he wants. He feels he is devoted. He is working towards a cause. He is, uh, you know, he is on a mission from God, and he, he doesn't care how many Nazis chase him in a bus. He's going to make it to that concert at the end of the day. Uh, so it just shows the extremes that he'll go to. And that's going to earn some ire. And I think that it certainly earned some ire from some from, from some people this episode. But you can at least understand the motivation. Uh, other number 12. Uh, John Krause has a great observation that once you realize that Boone is hallucinating the majority of the episode, it's funny to imagine seeing him from somebody else's perspective, just running around the jungle screaming and crying by himself. Man, that's the flashback we deserve. It's such a shame that that's not part of Expos. Yeah, I was going to say, like, Nikki and Paulo, because I believe actually this <laughs> happened on the day they found the Pearl Station. Uh, imagine them just running into a tripped out <laughs> Boone running through the jungle yeah. and they, they point him west or something. But yeah, I'm surprised he did not have any run-ins with people. It seems like a surprisingly small jungle there on the island, considering how much people run into each other. And just the image of a crazed Boone babbling, screaming, and running around, or even, like, running into him down by the riverbed where he's, like, cradling an invisible person and sobbing. Charlie's like, wow, he took my bit and just ran with it, didn't he? (laughs) Uh, The next other, other 13. Uh, Stefan Johnson just noting that Shannon is reading Watership Down when Saeed gives her the shoes, so she's reading faster than I am. Look, I don't know what to tell you. It's going to happen. It's probably going to happen in, like, two years. Listen, Josh has to sit and think about the book for four months beforehand. I do, this is typically how I how I read things. So I look at a book for a while, look at the object, I think about it, think about when I'm going to have the time to read the thing, think about all the other things that I've got to be doing between now and then, and it takes me like months, and then like I bite the bullet and I do the thing. So probably realistically knowing my process, I'm probably like four months away from reading Watership. Yeah, Down. you'll be able to do it Something before like Shannon ends up biting the bullet. I've got a very long flight coming up in a few weeks, so... Uh, maybe that'll that'll be the thing. Um, all right, other number fourteen this week in Survivor slash Lost. Oh history. no, is is Jordan Kalish parachuting in like no, Naomi? No, no, Jordan's not a Lost guy, unfortunately. This is coming to us from Brendan Fitzpatrick, who says, "I love the character building between Hurley and Jin in this episode, especially Hurley and the Urchin." Is Hurley as a Survivor fan? Canon. He at least saw that one episode of the Marquesa. If Hurley is a Survivor viewer, then that opens up a whole world of references for Hurley. That also means he knows who Boston Rob is. He would have seen Up Through All Stars, which aired in the spring of 2004. 
2004, and maybe even the premiere of Vanuatu, which was September 16th, 2004. Six days later, Oceanic 815 crashed. Oh, that makes sense. There was that cutscene from the pilot where Hurley takes a stone and puts it on top of a grease pole and asks Kate to climb uh-huh. it. I thought you were going to reference the fact that he couldn't get on the balance beam without falling <laughs> off. Uh, Sawyer really could have used Hurley's survivor knowledge from Pearl Islands last week before jumping in, into the pond in jeans. Maybe Kurt can, maybe Kate can sew him a skirt. Uh, Fitzy also notes, we can deduce from the timeline of the show so far that it's been about three weeks since the crash, which means we're up to episode five of Vanuatu. This is the episode with the infamous line from Bubba after the challenge of think about the merge, Chris, which resulted in Bubba being voted out at that night's tribal council. Ah, Hurley's missing so much right now on the island. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a bigger fan of Survivor Vanuatu than most, even though it was not well-received at the time. I would say a season one of Lost more well-received than Survivor Vanuatu. Yeah, uh, and as this season of Survivor Vanuatu is going on, Eliza Orleans is at Syracuse University at the same time as Josh Wiggler, uh, two classes above me, uh, while Hurley is on the island not yet knowing who Eliza is or just barely knowing who Eliza is because he's only seen the program. Oh, interesting. And then we cut to, to uh, campus safety from Syracuse where Eliza's sitting down talking to someone. And we see Josh Wegler in the back being like, yeah, get out of here. <laughs> no, you haven't heard my <laughs> side of the story yet. Uh, the two times that I saw Eliza on campus when we were both at Syracuse, I think I've told her this. I don't know that I have. Uh, we're both voting related. Oh. Uh, I saw her once on election day. Uh, of 2004. Uh, and then I also saw her uh, on her way uh, to a Michael Moore uh, speech that he gave at the Carrier Dome that I was also on my way to. Uh, so that those are, I, I always thought that was funny because she votes people out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She was just gaining uh, intel for when she came back onto Survivor. At the time, I thought that was cool. Um, all right, one last other. We're going to do the, the, the roundup. Uh, and Mike, the, the tribe has spoken. <laughs> As it were, universal praise for Count Jackula. The, re- <laughs> the reviews are in. Rotten Tomatoes can't quite get that 100% rating because I am the the the, the lone uh, no fun mopey type <laughs> who's apparently thumbs down on Count Jackula, but everyone else loves him. Brian Edwards says Count Jackula is exactly the hero <laughs> we needed right now. Laurel Laurel writes in and says the world needs more Count Jackula. Sometimes you need something to make you laugh. During such an emotionally charged show is lost. Jordan from Wisconsin says, Josh called up Mike's worst bit ever, but I loved Count Jackula. Sometimes the dumbest bits can be the best. Phoebe Nugent says, searched Twitter for Count Jackula. Very disappointed in my findings. But Phoebe must have missed at Jackula underscore Count, who is a Count Jackula stan account. Oh my God, it's uh, so good. Who, it's, it's- who tweeted, among other things this week, super thankful son didn't plant garlic in the <laughs> grove. Well, Count Jackula, you didn't account for what was in Shannon's mouth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh my God. I could not be more obsessed with this account. I mean, if you need any sort of buy-in to follow underscore Jackula, uh, Jackula underscore count, <laughs> it is literally a picture of Matthew Fox in a cape and cowl. <laughs> <laughs> the best one was a picture uh, that got yes. Jackie went through. Like, here's a behind-the-scenes picture of me in the season six premiere, and it's Jack on Oceanic Eight Fifteen in the sideways, standing in front of the mirror. Except he's got a Jack, he's got a cape 
uh, a vampire cape uh, that is photoshopped onto him, and he's also been photoshopped out of the mirror. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's no reflection. Very specific Twitter account. Uh, we will keep you posted on uh, random Count Jacko amusings along the way. Um, then uh, just a couple of other things to note. Uh, Dow and Servo reporting six more dudes. We are at 39 dudes! Uh, probably the last time we will be able to say that. Um, and then, of course, a Jim Fells video uh, music analysis from this episode, which we will link to in our show notes, as always. Any takeaways from that one, Mike? Really interesting one. Uh, we have introduced, been introduced to the Shannon theme in the last scene, which is going to come up when uh, she has died and when Saeed speaks at her funeral. Very interesting one here, Josh. A theme gets introduced that is actually going to end up being a theme for a later character. Three guesses, Josh, as to who that character is. Ooh, for a later character. Uh, hmm. Nikki and Palo? No. Dr. Arse? Nope, no. I'll give you one more guess. Um. Uh. uh help me. None other than Miles Strom gets what? his theme introduced in this episode yeah for some reason maybe giacchino just found a random motif that he wanted to bring back but yeah during some like it hoth they bring back that musical sting wow weird it's really strange strange, but that's why i love jim fell's work for a number of reasons but one of them is he does a great job of connecting the motif across the phenomenal ear and and this is the by far the most random one and i'm here for it that's awesome. Okay, so check that out. We'll link to Jim, as always, doing such great work uh, in our show notes. Uh, let's get to 23 points. I think this one's going to be a little tough. Um, we've got our MVP points to award our LVP points as well. This week, Mike is giving out two MVPs. I'm giving out three. Uh, then I'll have two LVPs, and Mike is giving out three. The headlines coming into this, uh, we've got uh, Kate is still in the lead. She walks away from whatever the case may be. Uh, status quo, the, the needle was not moved one way or the other. She balanced out with a with a an MVP and an LVP point. Uh, we've got a three-way tie for fourth place between Saeed, Locke, and Charlie. Uh, Jack and Son in third place with three apiece. Uh, as of last week, Sawyer is tanking at the bottom, negative four, tied with Christian Shepard. Uh, and Boone, uh, notably, uh, at minus three as well right now. Let's see if he is able to get out of that predicament. Uh, all right, so I'll lead us off, and I feel like it's probably going to be negated by you, but I'm going to give an MVP point to John Locke. Wow. You know, look, I gave Ethan an MVP point for being such an effective kidnapper that I got to, like, rob morality uh, from the equation <laughs> if, the, if the work is just so impressive. Uh, and the work is just so impressive from Locke. Like, that's not always going to be the case. If you're a douche, sometimes you just lose points because you're a douche. Uh, if you act in a, a way that's kind of terrible, then you lose points uh, because you've done something terrible. But if you're also doing something terrible, but you're so effective at being terrible, uh, then I think i got to give you a point. So John Locke's going to get an MVP point, plus the Michelangelo thing. It was great. Such a wonderful moment. Well, let me give my first MVP point, which I feel might get negated, to Boone Carlisle, to the focus of this episode. Uh, I Look, I can't necessarily say that, like, yeah, I fully support all the actions that he did in this episode, but the fact that I think we got more perspective on him 
and we got to find out what he's gone through, where he goes to Australia, finds out he's not only been conned, but conned multiple times for thousands of dollars, finally gets the romantic hookup he wanted to, only to get denied, then lands on an island where he ends up getting tortured and goes on this psychological journey just to fall under one man's, uh, you know, dominion. is just a hell of an obstacle course this guy has had to run through in his recent history. So Yeah, and we know how he is at the ropes course. Exactly. So purely, from, you know, from that reason, and just to get more perspective on this flashback character, I'm going to give Boone a point here. It, it's been sparse being able to do that just because of his attitude in previous episodes. So I want to give credit where credit is due. I think just while we're on the topic, and I know we're skipping over to the other column here, I am going to take, uh, I'm going to give an LVP point to Boone here. And the big piece is that, like, look, it, this is a tough episode to award LVP points unless you're just going like, oh, the dating police and Brian and all of that. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into some of that. But you, you want to have some juice uh, behind some of these picks here. And for Boone, he gets duped. He gets got. He gets converted to the Church of Locke, and it's what's going to get him killed. Uh, so in the spirit of I take points away from people who die, like this is step one towards, his, towards meeting his maker. Uh, so, yeah, very impressive that he gets out of the ropes. Uh, that's all well and dandy. But Boone gets himself into the ropes. And then Boone gets himself into the beachcraft because of the way of where he lands at the end of this episode. Well, then, uh, you uh, know what, Josh? Mutually assured destruction. I'm taking a point <laughs> well, away yeah, take it. from John take Locke it. just because of, we talked about this before, the, the others said it much more well than I could. Just the lengths that he went Fair to enough. to put Boone through what he did and to the point where I also will give it reduced points for sloppiness in him telling different stories to Jack and Saeed. Fair enough. So not good, not, enough. the Fair tracker enough. is not good at covering his own tracks. All right, so they don't they don't move the needle one way or the other, much like Locke's compass is broken compass. We've got uh, our first MVP and LVP points awarded are awash. Uh, I don't think that you're going to take anything away from Jin, are no. you? I'm going to give an MVP point to Jin. Josh, you know me so well, I would never. Uh, he gave Furley a fish. Yeah, you know he didn't pee on Hurley's foot. I got to assume that's because he did. He knows that Hurley doesn't need his foot to be peed upon, uh, and he gives him a, a scaled, gutted fish. Uh, he makes him eat an, uh, an urchin, and that's really funny. And Jin is really wonderful in this episode, and I got to give Jin a point. And I'm going to keep on the quan train. I'm going to give a point to Sun. The thing she was able to do with the garden, maybe that's why she was gone in the background for the past few episodes. She was working on this. I mean, this is instrumental to their survival. Yes, her secret is out, but it's with the one person that you know can keep a secret, considering how many secrets she has running in her head at all times. So I got to give it up to the Quan here. Uh, and I'll give my final MVP point to Kate Austin, uh, Queen Kate reigning champion here in the MVP section uh, down the hatch. We are uh, a Kate Austin Stan podcast. Uh, and the fact that Kate is able to divine from son that she speaks English based on nothing more than a surreptitious smile uh, is awesome. That's really, really great. Uh, these are the moments that you live for when it comes to Kate. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, you, if you're mad at me for giving too many points to Kate, I don't know what to tell you. Go eat some gross little yellow grapes. Yeah, then maybe a passion fruit will grow inside you and you'll grow more passionate about it. Uh, so yes. we, we yes. each gave out our first LVP points. So I'm going to give out my second here. And look, Megan, cover up your ears for this next one. Uh, while I appreciate the Shannon stuff, especially moving forward, I, I, I got to give her one here. I mean, uh -huh. she conned... <laughs> Her stepbrother 
out of money, then slept with him, and and then and then said, "Okay, you know what? Then we can forget all about that." Like, she, but it was very effective. This was effective, terrible. Stuff. Yeah, I mean, but she's just such a huge manipulator here. And while I do admire the effort, it doesn't take away from the ethics of it. So I got a docker a point here. Yeah, you don't you don't vote along those same lines that I do. No, I'm, I vote with my heart. You vote with your mind. Yeah, uh, I'm actually going to give Shannon an LVP point, but that's because Ghost Shannon dies. Uh, <laughs> so this is technically a point against Ghost Shannon, uh, but I think just for the sake of tracking, yeah. you just got to throw it on to Shannon. Yeah, that's going to be one of those ones that we look back at three months like, who the hell is Ghost Shannon? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, do we want to separate it out as Ghost no, Shannon? No, I, I guess. <laughs> let's keep it within one entity for now. Yeah, all right. we'll, see well, I mean, do you apply that to the monster or do you apply that to Shannon? I think... I don't know. Uh, just just give it to Shannon. Yeah. I guess. And I'm going to give an LVP one. You mentioned him before, but uh, let's start the Brian hate going one week early. I'll give it to Brian number yeah. one just because he walked away with their money and broke it off with Shannon as well. What a big old hose of a man. Yeah. Uh, but he walks away with the money, so I feel like uh, I almost feel like I should give him an MVP point, but we, I just I don't have enough. Um, that's fine. All right. Let's get into it. 4.2 stars are episode rankings for each and every episode of Lost Mike Bloom. And of course, as a refresher, the way this works, I give a score for each episode from a scale of 0 to 4.2. Mike does the same. You, the listener, do the same. You send that score to our email address, down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. Rate the episode from 0 to 4.2. We will then average the listener scores as a third data point. That will be averaged with my score and Mike's score for the full average, the official down-the-hatch rating for the episode of Lost that we are discussing. Season 1, those episode rankings are flexible all the way through the Season 1 finale, and we'll give it a little wiggle room beyond there so that people can catch up. Um, So this remains a flexible document. Hearts and Minds, we are about to place Hearts and Minds at least as far as its first uh, ranking on the board. And I don't think that there's any world where you and I are like seriously saying that this was like the best episode of season one so far. Uh, like, there's just no universe where that makes sense. There's no, you know, I'm very liberal with my 4.2s. There's, there's no world where Hearts and Minds scores a 4.2. But this is a good episode of Lost. Yeah. Like, this is a, this is a much better episode of Lost than people give it credit for. Uh, this is, this is an episode of Lost that like all of that side stuff, all of that is really, really fun. Uh, the Jin and Hurley scene, really, really ridiculously mm-hmm. fun. Um, the, uh, you know, Jack going around and doing the rounds is really, really fun to watch. I almost gave Jack an MVP point instead of Kate, actually, uh, but ultimately went with Kate because I think her feet was a little more impressive. Uh, but the Jack stuff is great. The John Locke stuff is just, it's great to watch, even if you disagree with him there. And, like, the Boone and Shannon stuff ultimately is not my favorite storyline, but it's not, like untolerable (laughs) the way the way that some of the whatever the case may be stuff is in the a and b plot like it's a little questionable it's it's a little like squeamish it makes you feel weird but i think that that's the point so it's effective the other piece of it too is uh this is a very impressive debut outing from carlton cuse i think uh helped along by javier griot mark swash who is uh an you know i think starting to be sung more as a hero within the lost canon um but to a certain degree unsung uh and i think that that's a really great partnership that produces um 
some really intelligent takes on these characters. Uh, but for Carlton, for this being kind of like his training ground for getting to know these people, um, you know, his next episode, I believe that he's going to byline is Deus Ex Machina. Oh, uh, I think that he and, and, and Damon write that no, together. Another so, big like, boon moment, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. But like, so that like leap in quality though, from hearts and minds to Deus is, is really, really strong. But I think that it starts from a strong place. I think that it starts in a strong place, but I think what's going to hold it back for me in my ultimate ranking of it is like what separates it from some of those earlier episodes from the season is it doesn't quite feel classic in the same way i think that there's something about all of the episodes up to all the best cowboys have daddy issues that feels like classic like that feels like the the classic era of lost before we got into like the additional episode order for the rest of the season um i don't know if you feel that same way i i think for me it feels that way because of uh, how deeply i associate those episodes with like the first semester of my sophomore year of college and discovering this show for the first time so i fully admit to a bias there but i can't shake it so i'd be inclined to like you know we i'm looking back at like some of my scores and like tabula rasa i gave it a 3.5 the moth i gave a Three. I think that this is a better episode than The Moth. I think that this is about somewhere in the range of like a 3.2, 3.3, and just because it's a numbers inverse, I'll give it a 3.2 ultimately, which is still a strong score. I think that that's really representative. Of like, that was a really good episode of Lost. I really enjoyed myself watching it this Yeah, week. I completely agree. I was very surprised uh, because, as we know, like the one thing, as you mentioned before, that a lot of people remember this is the Boone Shannon hookup scene and i can understand why you want to keep that at arm's length but there's so much interesting character stuff going on and that i cannot say that about the majority of whatever the case may be where the main action is really not that interesting from my opinion say what you want to about how this makes boone and shannon look as characters but there's at least a lot of interesting stuff that really helps us learn about these people even if what we learn is is not the most ethically sound. On top of that, it is a surprising ensemble episode, which I just forget how in the back half of season one, there are so many ensemble episodes. It shows why this is one of the strongest TV ensembles of all time. And like you said, I really liked those smaller moments. And even getting to reinvestigate scenes like the Saeed Locke scene and the Jack and Locke scenes, knowing what happens with those characters, just bears out such rich fruit almost unintentionally, that I really like to nom on. I think this is a better episode. Hard to digest, though. Exactly. Very. But I think this is a better episode than Tabula Rasa, in my opinion. And in in terms of my rankings, now I'm starting to look at, like, okay, I think if X is a better episode than Y, what did I rate X? I rated Mm -hmm. Tabula Rasa a 3.4. I don't know. You know, Raised by Another is another really strong episode with good, interesting A plot, very fun B plot, and a killer ending. I'm going to give it the same score. I'm going to give Hearts and Minds a 3.5, which might be my okay. my biggest surprise personally of the season so far is how much I enjoyed this episode. Yeah, that, that's that's high, but I think you articulate it well. Uh, I, I think for me, it's it's that classic factor that I think Tabula Rasa uh, goes ahead of Hearts and Minds for me. Um, but I but the classic stuff isn't enough to to uh, keep like the moth ahead of it for me. Like I think that objectively, this feels like a better episode than uh, than the moth for me. Um, in terms of the audience score, right now it sits at a two point nine. 
uh, which is, I think, higher than I would have expected, uh, for sure. We've got one person who gave it a 1.5, which I think is uh, is knocking things fairly low. But we've got people who rated it fairly yeah. high. We had a couple of th- 3.8s. We had a 3.7 uh, in the audience score, a 3.6. Uh, so there, there are people who, who really greatly enjoyed this episode. Uh, and then a lot in like that like um, mid to high two uh, range. Uh, so I think people are a little bit all over the map with hearts and minds. Well, that's why uh, the compass is going I, crazy, Josh. They don't know where to go. I think so. But as it stands, that gives it a down-the-hatch score of 3.21. Again, that's going to be flexible, and that's enough to put it in the 10 spot. Uh, so these are the rankings of Lost so far uh, through the point that we have seen here on Down the Hatch in 12th, whatever the case may be. Then The Moth, then Hearts and Minds, then Tabula Rasa, then Raised by Another in 8th, Confidence Man 7th, House of the Rising Sun 6th, Solitary 5th, White Rabbit 4th, All the Best Daddies in 3rd, uh, the two-part pilot and second in walkabout is still king of the ring at first also uh, uh hearts, and, hearts and minds uh, the last time it'll be a top 10 episode <laughs> yeah. uh, uh maybe not specials coming up oh, next yeah. week i think maybe it's gonna linger in the top 10 for a, a little nice two-week grace period but i feel like the bigger news item is uh due to recent rankings initially white rabbit was in the number three spot but it got superseded by the other jack flashback episode by all the best daddies has worked its way into the top three <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those daddies working overtime <laughs> On paternity leave, sending all of their rankings in to make sure they get the recognition. Uh, now they we're going to have all like the anti-daddies like, <laughs> like purposely review bombing that episode so it falls uh, below White Rabbit. That's amazing. All right. Well, speaking of daddies, there will be a very special daddy at the focus of Lost next week. We're talking special, the Michael Dawson flashback episode. That podcast is going to drop in your feed on November 15th. Get your feedback in by the morning of November 12th at the very latest, ideally the night of November 11th. You can send that feedback into us down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com is our email address at postshowrecaps on Twitter at Round Howard. That's me on Twitter. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. If you have not done so, we highly encourage you to subscribe to the Down the Hatch podcast. And even more so, if you have not yet left a review or a rating, I cannot emphasize enough how helpful that is. Uh, You've been so kind with all of that. If you have not done that yet, uh, we would really, really appreciate it as we are hoping to draw more people to the island to listen to our shenanigans about Lost. Um, Mike Bloom, any, any final thoughts on hearts and minds as we start looking ahead towards special now, i want to look ahead to special because this was one of those episodes i know you, you you thought about uh you know how my reactions to raised by another would be as a parent but this was the one i was really intrigued by because no offense to claire but considering how this is going to be the story of a father and son and specifically you know i remember the michael flashback being simultaneously crushing and confusing uh, you know, if we talk about a lot of plots that end up sprouting into really interesting things down the line with Lost, we're going to start to have to talk about Walt's special powers, which is a very interesting rabbit hole to go down, which was one of the uh, the first little can of worms. Yeah, one of the first, I think, sticking points that people had with the early stages of Lost in terms of plot lines that did not pay off. It's going to get introduced here, and I'm very intrigued to see both how I react to this episode and what we'll have to say about it. Yeah, uh, a tease for next week's episode. I believe we've already teased this to a certain degree, that the great Ben behind the curtain believes that this is the worst episode of season one, and it's not close. 
Uh, so that's the energy we're going into special with in terms of the the third invisible head here uh, on Down the Hatch, the podcast. Uh, I haven't revisited it since that really fast rewatch that I did earlier in 2019. Uh, and I don't remember like really stopping down to carefully consider it. So that's what we're about to do. We're going to stop down. We're going to carefully consider the episode. We will report back on our findings. Love me some Harold Perrineau. Uh, Michael not been doing so hot in the MVP LVP category. So let's see if he can crawl out of, uh, of his doomed fate or if he is just going to be stuck in LVB hell. Uh, I don't know why I said LVB, uh, <laughs> but I did. And I have no explanation. Least valuable boon. Uh, Least valuable boon, indeed. All right, we'll be back next week talking about special. Get your questions in. Until then, everybody, take care. Goodbye. Four, eight, 15, 16, 20, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 